would have thought that the Scav King would be, like, dressed up in, like, 1800s version of 1700s fashion, like, he's right? He's so like, mad, uh, but he's so fancy. It <laughs> 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 amuses me so much. <laughs> Just, like, the combination of those two things. <laughs> I think that's our cold open. He's so mad, but he's so fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the same can be said for Jones, too. <laughs> oh, my God. I will, like, and, okay. Well, so she wore contacts for this shit. Like, <laughs> 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 it's just so funny. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. I'm going to need a minute. She wore contacts for this shit. She did. Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, this is a rewatch podcast, which means we've seen the entire series from the beginning to the end and back again. And that's exactly how we spoil. So if you haven't seen the entire thing, you need to stop for now and come back and join us later once you've cried several times. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, true though. (laughs) Accurate. Is is it a wrong... Advertisement. Uh, I want to say advertisement. I've been listening to a lot of British things lately. (laughs) That's appropriate for this pot for this episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) chuckaboo, chuckaboo. You can say advertisement. (laughs) This is me. (laughs) On one loopy evening, where I am joined as always by the lovely CC. Hey guys. And our resident Alice in Wonderland expert, which is apparently all we can think to say about her at this point, Alicia is back. I laughed when I saw that. You know what? I will take that title. Hello, you guys. Dr. Alicia, who also has a PhD in chemical engineering. Also, Alice in Wonderland Bye. expert or what guru? That that is also a that is also high praise for me. <laughs> um, I'm so glad you're back. We were joking around that we in the last episode, you the, the last pod you did with us was blood washed away. So anytime casserole get to kiss, we bring you back. <laughs> I mean, so that, that can... sounds perfect to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you can flail with me. Yay! Yep. I'm so excited. Yeah, I, this is one. Yeah, I love. Yeah, you were gonna talk about it. I don't even. I'm not even gonna talk about it yet. But I love the scenes in this episode <laughs> so much. Um, and just to explain, we are all really loopy on lack of sleep for all very different reasons. <laughs> but, um, not. It'll be long time in the future when people hear this. But um, I was up till one a.m. last night watching the Washington Nationals eliminate the Los Angeles Dodgers um, in advance for the first time. So I am loopy. And you're loopy, Alicia, right? Yes, I'm so loopy. I was in an all-day workshop at uh, work today, and it was it was like eight 
solid hours talking about chemistry. (laughs) 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 Um, And I would like to just point out that uh, Beep made the excellent pun that I was hoping she would make or somebody would make um, (laughs) that we are about to spend two more hours talking about a different but equally interesting kind of chemistry. (laughs) Okay, maybe a lot more interesting to many people, but to me, they are both very interesting (laughs) as the person who also has a periodic table on their phone case. <laughs> um, yes, but anyway, I was in, yeah, I already sound loopy, but I was in a, in a workshop all day and I'm, I'm completely all over the place, but I'm very excited to be here because we must flail and casserole kiss. So uh, it is, it's a rule. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then, Beep, you've been working. Tell everyone why you are so tired. It's really exciting. Yeah, I have been editing an audio series for, I think, a thousand years. It's very hard to say. <laughs> what are you editing? Yes. What am I editing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I... <laughs> I was going to say I've been secretly working on, but I haven't. It's I've been blasting it to anybody who'll listen. Um, I have been working on an audio series that is coming out this coming Tuesday, October 15th, called Octimity. It is an original sci-fi story that um, is going to be produced. It's kind of, what is it? I call it a scribopod. It's written as a script. It's kind of like a book, and it's being released as a podcast. So it's somewhere of a mixture of all three of those. Um, because it's a script, it's written in present tense, which means like everything that's going on is happening as we see it too. Like it's happening to the characters, it's happening to us, and we're just taking that journey along with them. So yay, sci-fi, yay for that being done. Can't wait till Tuesday. (laughs) Yes! I can't Uh, wait till Tuesday to hear it. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And if anybody is interested in trying out a new uh, audio series that is an original sci-fi story, you can follow that on Twitter at Octimity, which is O-C-T-I-M-I-T-Y. And you'll get releases on there. It'll be coming up SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, all of those wonderful, as Aaron would say, podcast getting places. So look forward to that. And lot and lots of people who are uh, who have been on our pod are playing, um, you know, from from small roles to big roles. So the voices will be familiar to you guys. Which that is true. Yes, some lovely, beautiful friends are bringing a lot of these characters to life, and it makes me very happy. So fun! Yay! We have really fun announcement for our upcoming pod on. Thief, Terry Metalis, and Sean Tretta, who wrote that episode um, and produced, I believe, the episodes that were in Prague, are both coming on to break down Thief. Um, and we are really, really, really excited because it's just like, man, it's just a classic episode of TV. So to get to talk to both of them and break it all down um, is just really, really special. And we're, and we're just thrilled because we wanted to do something special to celebrate uh, 309. Um, so our next episode will be with Terry Metalis and Sean Tretta. Um yeah, I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, um, sorry, you mentioned because you, because you mentioned Terry Metalis. I just want to say before we move on, because um, I think this happened after the last time I was on the pod. But um, thank you, Terry, for sending me a bunch of art. It was amazing. It was like all the stuff that is like perfectly the things that I love. There was like Paris and Cole. And uh, yeah, I, I am super, super grateful. That was awesome. And uh, it's going to be framed and up on my walls very soon. So thank you. Thank you so much. 
Oh, so fun. That sounds like a fanfic, Alicia. It was Paris and Cole. And- oh, I know. <laughs> what happened next? <laughs> okay, I mean, there was like one that where it was like the witness lying down. No, 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 no. No, we don't need no. all. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but no, that Paris one, especially like I, you, you guys know how much I love those scenes there. Uh, they're, they're my favorite. I just splinter. No. Uh, but I was very excited about that. So um, thank you so much. Um, and we are going to, we actually, I feel like we have been so grumpy about other stuff that we've been watching and we actually have stuff that we love that we've watched. So we're going to save that at the end, um, things that we, that we love right now that we're watching. Um, what we are talking about today is episode 308, Masks, stories by Tony Elliott, teleplay by Tony Elliott and Sean Tretta, and directed by David Grossman. Um, we also like to call this episode Casserole Victorian Date Night. It's <laughs> <laughs> a working title. <laughs> like to call it we only have basically after season one two casserole date nights which one is in the 60s and after in season four but also involves cole nearly dying and it's uh, it's fun for like the first 15 minutes um and then this one so um, oh come on don't forget butt stuff <laughs> Casserole date night. It sounds like a date night where you make casserole. <laughs> Just like I cannot Isn't stop that every thinking date about night? that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, no, it does not involve like a nine by thirteen glass dish. <laughs> Um, all right. So before we jump in, um, as always, I wanted to talk about some big picture stuff first. And I don't know actually about Beep, but I know that Alicia loves period pieces. Like I love period pieces. Like I love period pieces so much that before there was streaming available, I bought a universal DVD player so that I could order BBC DVDs from amazon.co.uk. <laughs> I wouldn't have to wait for Masterpiece to fucking wait till January to air stuff. Like, I did that for that BBC North and South, Alicia, that we love so oh, much. Oh, no so, way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's A, how I... old I am, and B, how obsessed I am with anything that takes place uh, prior to 1900 that aired on the BBC. So now, wow. well, you now are I'm- your own period piece. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm wondering if they were more easily available in Canada because, like, I just remember watching these things on TV. And you know where I would get it? Well, how I watch North and South because I love it too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually. And, got- and to be clear, and to be clear, we are not talking about, although I also enjoyed Patrick Swayze, North and South. <laughs> we no, are talking no, about Elizabeth Gaskell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I actually checked it out of the library <laughs> multiple yes. times, and I would watch it with my friend, like, I would say every few months, we would get together and watch the whole thing just, like, on a weekend. Like, this is back in high school, maybe? I don't know. It, it, so yeah, I would check these pieces out either out of the library, or I think they were just, like, I would just see it on TV, and so now I'm like, it wasn't... Maybe I maybe I wasn't like all up and up with like knowing when things were coming out, so I would just watch them when they were airing. But I love period pieces so much, and and like this is the happy place, definitely of like the best two genres ever. 
The best two genres ever. It's ever. sci-fi and a period piece that looks like it's from the BBC. So you've got splitter suits and you have like a masquerade ball. And when this episode oh. came on, I freaked out because I was like, it's all of the things that I love all together, all at once. There's people disappearing and there's time travel. And yet there's also giant skirts and big hats and Victorian hairdos. And I'm so happy. Um, and also, I just, this is one of those episodes that you sit back and you're like, everybody always talks about that they had such a small budget, but it looks mm-hmm. expensive. <laughs> it looks so expensive. Yeah, it looks, it looks like really like a high, high production value. That's what I said. Like the ball and like the sets and everything are just really well done. Oh my God. It looks like when the BBC does, you know, like little mm-hmm. Dorrit or, you know, they're like, you know, once, once a year, big adaptation, you know, like War and Peace and stuff like, it looks like that. And I don't, you know, I mean, I, obviously Prague is a gorgeous city uh, and yeah. this is our first episode, I believe, because we're also going to be in Prague in season four. Um, and we're obviously going to be in Prague standing in for London in the next episode. So this is the first, I think this is the first episode that they filmed in Prague. Um, and they are on location at like the ball is in Chateau, I don't know, Dobris. Do- I'm not sure the right way to pronounce that. Um, but that is an ancient, like, from the Kingdom of Bohemia um, location that goes back to like 14, 1500s. Although I think the building where the ball takes place is from the 1700s. Um, and then uh, Cassie and Cole, the house they're at is called, it's the Sugar Producers Palace, Athens Home, Clam Gallus Palace. If you want to dig into sort of all those locations, Project Splinter has all of the information about the different shooting locations. So they're in real, at least the facades, and I assume the ball actually, that scene is filmed in real you know like historic places so obviously so, that adds wait, to it looking amazing one thing first of all i um i feel like you you said you'd been you've been to Prague too right um yes. tina yeah. so the one thing i looked up these places because i was just curious and i had also gone before watching the rest of the show so i was really sad because i was like if i had watched the show before i would have gone to those places but at least clam gallus palace that's like right by the clementium the library and i'm like i know we walked by there mm-hmm. so Absolutely. and i didn't even know that it like I couldn't you know I couldn't identify that building now if you like told me to I just know we like wandered around the Clementium a bunch and so I'm like I know I've walked by there so it's like this weird thing where seeing it now and I'm like I know I've walked by it but I don't remember it because it's not a place that we you know meant to go to um it's just really it's exciting but also now I kind of want to go and see all of these like locations again and and because they're not they're not like when you think of the city like it's not something that you'd be like oh this is like the Eiffel Tower or something you know right. these are places that you'd have to go and like really find intentionally yes yeah which you know we probably would but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um so Prague is just it looks beautiful the cinematography looks to me like I don't we talk a lot on the pod about how they do cinematography for like a particular era and sometimes it's hard to know you know what's our conception of the way an era looked because that's how we've seen it on film, right? Like whether it was the 70s episode or the 40s. And this looks like, the cinematography looks like when you're watching a BBC period piece, mm-hmm. you know? Like it's got, and it, I, it's one of those things that's like hard to articulate in words, but it looks like you're watching Little Dorrit mm-hmm. or or War and Peace mm-hmm. or like, you know, it looks like that and it's hard to articulate, but it's so, cinematography this episode is so beautiful. 
Um, I was just going to say to your point about how it looks so different from the like how you can tell the different um, time periods apart. Like just imagine this episode and then go and think about like the episode where they with with Hitler and like that that whole that whole other like Germany kind of um the scenes and like the lighting and everything it's just it's so completely different and i mean mm-hmm. even within this um episode there's like a couple of different time periods which uh um is really fun but like just just thinking about like that ball scene and then thinking about like um Jennifer sinking scene like th- those are so completely so different and like they're in the same show which is really like it's a really fun con- and they're both really really well produced in like what they're supposed to be <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, we'll we'll get into the the masquerade ball, but the costumes in this episode are unbelievable. Um, and I remember when Amanda Schul came on, she said that some of the dresses that she wore were, you know, from that time period. Um, Whoa. I know. But you've got 1945 and 1899. And on top of that, a masquerade ball with extras, right, that are in all these costumes. It's just... It's just really like stunning and you sit back and when you can put aside that once you've watched it for the plot and you can sit back and just kind of appreciate it. It's just like when you think about all of the work from so many different like departments that went into pulling it off. It's just really like it just looked amazing. Can we just give a shout out to our friend uh, Dr. Funkostein who has made the um, ball costume casserole and yes. they're incredible and I, I don't know if those are like part of the set that like Terry has now or if Sarah has them but like those those Funkos are amazing <laughs> and like the details in those costumes like I I really lo- I think she made even the dancing like the the like dress ones and they're, oh, I love the costumes so much but it always now reminds me of her Funkos because they look so yes, good too. They look so good I know and it was definitely like yeah so um, the other thing I was thinking about when it comes to period pieces I mean you've got some kind of classic like right the big confrontations at the ball right like that's like the best part of a period piece right is the ball when the shit hits the fan um but i was also thinking about the way that like if this were maybe another genre show it would perhaps be a little bit more jarring to be you know one thing is to be in the 40s or the 70s but like to be in the 1800s i mean obviously we're going to end up in you know medieval times in season four but this was kind of the biggest time jump um but Both 12 Monkeys and period pieces both feature characters talking a lot. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like a lot of focus on character, a lot of focus on conversations between characters. um, And, you know, obviously there's a lot of action in 12 Monkeys too. But one of the reasons why we love this show so much is because it features so many, so much dialogue and those kind of like really meaty character to character. And in period pieces, it's often, you know, people dressed up talking (laughs) and that's kind of what's going on and so it's it's funny to me that like I think that's one of the reasons why you know in addition to um obviously it looks amazing is it's not it it, it feel it like it it fits because Mm -hmm. it's one of the it's one of the things that they've always done so well is characters talking to one another um and so when you have Jones and Cole talking at a ball and even though you're like holy shit he's dancing with his grandmother at a ball um you're you're used to them having these kinds of conversations so it doesn't feel like out of place does that make sense yeah, I was just about to say, like, the the scene of people having a tense conversation while dancing is, like, a classic period piece 
trope. I want to, I don't know if trope is the right word for it, but like that's, it's, it's classically used like people talking when dancing or people having like a, a tense conversation or a, con- a conversation filled, filled with subtext like that. That is a very classic way to do that. So it was so fun to, to see. And then like, realize that they're also like time travelers and they have a gun right. like you know it's a, it was such a like a, a mind bending ex- experience because we're so used to seeing these two things separately but um again like we said it was really fun to see them together too <laughs> right like right in Jane Austen Darcy and Elizabeth don't have guns drawn on each other but they're having really intense uh, conversations where the subtext is fuck you um but it's all <laughs> very polite and while they're remembering very complex complex dance moves, which seems to me like a talent that maybe just went away with another genera- previous generation. I mean, um, sidebar, they do fight a lot in Pride and Prejudice and Zombie. <laughs> 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 so if you do want to see them wielding guns, you know, there's an outlet for that. <laughs> um, the other thing that I love, and obviously we will get to the big guest star reveal at the end of the episode, but if you are a period piece, fan Rupert Graves who plays Sebastian um is like period piece royalty like Merchant Ivory like Room with a View and Maurice and a show I really really love that I think was on the BBC where he was with Damian Lewis called the Foresight Saga um which was uh, like kind of a, a sweeping like aristocratic family um, epic that takes place in the UK, I think like late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, He's like, you know, if you've been watching a lot of period pieces, you you know who Rupert Graves is. And man, was he dreamy in a room with a view. So I was really excited (laughs) to see him um, in this episode. Um, And then obviously, we can jump to did you guys watch – did either of you – I was wondering if I'm the only person. Did either of you watch Battlestar Galactica? Yes. <laughs> so, Alicia, what was your reaction? I never finished it. I know. I know. That's but okay. you, you have but watched you know, part of it. Yeah, so you know who he was, right? Oh, yeah. yeah he was yeah, a yeah. snivelly little shit. <laughs> uh, but, such a, but such a delightful one. Oh, when, my when, gosh. So, we binged – I had no idea that James Callis – was guest starring and so when we binged you know because season three was like a binge when we watched it um my husband and i freaking screamed when he took the mask off like holy shit it's gaius beltar like lost our shit um did you alicia did you freak out so i yeah i was not uh, like amazingly magically i was not spoiled on this um guest star and so like when i saw again when i saw him take the mask off i freaked out because like uh, and I didn't know how many episodes he was going to, and he, he did amazing, like with, you know, with the, the few episodes that he was there. But like, I was so excited because I feel like James Callis, like, I, I don't know if this is the expression, but he like, just like completely like eats up the scenery, like the scene, like he just, you, like when he's on screen, like you watch him, even if he's being like totally shitty or whatever. Always, and, like, always. He, he is like one of the most watchable people. And like, I mean, that is the biggest compliment. And so when I saw him, I was like, oh, this, and like as Ethan, especially, I was like, oh, this is good. This is going to be good. <laughs> like, it's so good because yeah. it's also playing with our, uh, and I, you know, I, 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 I think I'm 
remembering correctly that they wrote this role for him. I I think I'm remembering that correctly. But, you know, it's kind of great because, you know, and this jumps into sort of the next kind of big picture thing I want to talk about um, with sort of the name of the episode and kind of the all of the literal and, and you know, figurative metaphorical masks. Um, if you are a Battlestar fan and, and he takes his mask off and it's James Callis, uh, you know, guys' belts are certainly complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but – but you – there is a certain, I think, playing with, like, an audience expectation of, man, he really could be the bad guy, you know? Yeah. Like, in addition yeah. to everything that they've built in the story to make us think that and the way they reveal him and the way his voice goes down, like, when the forest is red and you're like, fuck! <laughs> you know, like, um, that, that you, they're setting us up. To really, to really feel the stakes of man, this may not turn out well, right? Like it's being played by James Callis, and he can be the bad dude, right? Like it can be mm-hmm. complicated, but he can definitely be the bad. Now he can also be, if you've watched Austin Land or Bridget Jones's Diary, like be also freaking hilarious. Um, oh my gosh, but- I love him in Bridget Jones's Diary. <laughs> I love him. Like right, that all fight- the friends are like so famous. <laughs> now whenever I watch that movie, now I'm like, oh my god, all of these people are like, <laughs> yeah, I'll watch this. I would watch this. Spin- off of just the friends right Right, same um yeah so anyway so we um love james callis and um yeah we definitely screamed out loud um so i know he's just at the teeny bit at the end um but it's kind of fun now because you're like he is there watching yeah no his arc or like his and just the acting and what all they did with ethan it's it's just so incredible it's like one of my favorite series of episodes um in this entire show and i feel like i say that a lot but (laughs) it really is (laughs) it really is because it was built up for so long Mm -hmm. the wit you know and obviously he's not the witness Mm -hmm. but but you feel like you're finally by the the end of this episode feels like you are meeting like darth vader yeah you know by the way there this whole time there are so many clues with all the olivia stuff that she's the witness (laughs) like watching it now i'm like this whole episode implies that she's the witness but like you while you're watching it of course the first time you just you don't even know so it's it's like so well done because it's he's like he like you said he does feel like he could be the big bad but like it's right under your nose the whole time Right, the whole time, right? Like you can, like we we are we are we are Jones following the footsteps mm-hmm. in the wrong direction, <laughs> and they're telling us it's it's no guys, it's Mister. Oh, we're following the footsteps in the wrong direction. Um, okay, so obviously the name of the episode is masks. Um, so much to unpack there. Um, that I've been thinking about, just sort of getting ready for the for this pod. Um, you know, obviously it's a masquerade ball. Um, you have Cassie and Cole having to take on personas. Um, but I was just thinking about the whole idea of like what a mask can do, right? Like hiding hiding who you are. Um, what, how that allows you, like, particularly at a masquerade ball, like how to, you know, they're, fa- they were known for people being, feeling more like they could take more risks, right? So like, we, you can hide behind a mask. Um, there's a lot of, um, discussion in this episode about, like, who people really are and whether they can change, whether it's with respect to Ethan or even with Deacon. Um, you've got Olivia, who in this episode, 
She's not wearing a physical mask, but she is wearing the mask of an ally when she's not. <laughs> she's the big bad, <laughs> right? Um, the icon of this show, like the iconic image of the show is a mask, <laughs> um, and, right? And our, yeah. our antagonist. But this story where I, I was just thinking about it and I, I don't mean to get like overly like, what's the right word? Like poetic about it. But the story, this story, the show is a show that wears a lot of masks in the way that it tells the story. So obviously the first one is who the witness is. Um, for a very, very long time, we are thinking that it's Cassie and Cole's son and it's really olivia um you've got a lot of like the word of the witness we think it's one thing we're gonna we're gonna find out it's really something else um it's not it's the word of a witness but not the witness um when this show first started out we thought it was about a plague turns out it's that's really only sort of a a side effect of what's really going on. Um, and, you know, it's obviously this crazy sci-fi time travel genre show, but what it's really about is family, um, both biological and found family, which is actually one of the things that makes it so hard to articulate that to people when when you're trying to get them to watch. <laughs> Like what you know, you're like what it's really about is this, but I can't really say that. You can you can talk about the found family mm -hmm. part, right? But all of that, you know, it's a family drama, which is really apparent in this episode with how hurt people are over betrayal, um, and people talking about real sons. Jones talking about her. I mean, obviously Cole's her grandson, but her like found son in Cole. And it's really like about this family, found family being split apart and fighting one another. And that's what the show at its heart is about, um, even if it's also sort of wearing like, you know, it it's crazy sci-fi as well. So did you guys have any other ideas sort of about – like all of the different, you know, it ends with Eliza's mask. We think that's a witness mask. It's obviously not what we think it is. And we're going to find out in the next episode. Um, it's her wearing a mask as to be a thief when she's really a doctor. Um, did you guys have any other thoughts about masks in the episode? I did want to, when, when we talked about like, okay, this is the title and I kind of, um, read through, uh, what you were talking about just now. If you think back in the show, and you think about um, Cassie's mask in season two that she needs to go outside. Um, mm. You think about old Jennifer's veil that she wears to hide her face when we get that dramatic reveal <laughs> of, of mm -hmm. who she is. Um, you think about Hannah, who always wears her, like, um, cloth or whatever. Like, she, she hides her face, um, and, you know, kind of with all her, her eye makeup and everything. She's essentially wearing a mask all of the time. Um, pretty much whenever she's not in costume, actually, Hannah is wearing that, uh, dark eye makeup slash scarf combo mm -hmm. situation that really hides her face. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's just like so many examples of, using masks to hide like to what you were saying like to hide who who they are who the characters are like i i think um with cassie it's maybe the most clear like she she requires yes you know she requires that mask to go outside and to breathe and everything but it's also that cassie of season two if we remember she is she's trying to be somebody else and she's mm -hmm. or she has become somebody else because of the circumstances that have made her that way um, and similarly with, um, old Jennifer, I think it's like, we are used to seeing young Jennifer 
And old Jennifer always, well, n- maybe not towards the end. Actually, she pretty frequently has that like whole veil situation going on. Like she's also um, kind of shrouded in mystery, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but there's there's kind of examples leading up to this that are um, placed in there. And I think because, like you said, the icon of the show is a mask, um, it's, I don't think it's like coincidental that it kind of leads here. Of course, the ball is perfect and like hiding your identity and all that. It's just, it's a perfect culmination. But I think it's, it's been present because it's such a known symbol of the show, like the mask of the witness, but the way they use it to, for each character to kind of hide who they are. And I think the biggest example might be, um, Hannah just overall, because she, she has that costume on for so long, pretty much until she goes back uh, in time to to stay there and like has coal and everything like I think until that point that's when she really lets go of that makeup and everything yeah um, and and just becomes herself because other than that like even in this episode we saw she was wearing that costume when they went back on the train but then when she's back in the future she's back in like um Hannah mask mode <laughs> right right um, which is so interesting because if there's any character that is masked to the mm-hmm. audience for the whole series as to who she really well we know that Hannah is Jones's daughter but we mm-hmm. don't know that she's Cole's mother until the very very end of the story and so you know she's another like Olivia we don't know she's the witness Hannah we don't know she's Cole's mother right they're playing with um you know whether it's masks whether it's Jennifer shell game right mm-hmm. like there's a a lot of things that are hidden from the audience, um, yeah. right? So, and also, like, I was thinking about how on the word of the witness, Ethan, you know, the word of the witness details everybody's birth and death, um, which we've seen since season two with locations um, and dates, um, you know, whether it's Jennifer um, or Cole born and such and such, Cassie born such and such. When it comes to Sebastian's death, Ethan purposefully masks, masks it, it. Yep. You know? And he says the two pence for a popper and the and the and the mask of red death and the date, but he masks from Sebastian why that date is important mm-hmm. um and what's gonna happen when he's there. And then, you know, they introduce adult Ethan at the end of this episode wearing a mask. And it's I think there's a parallel to how they introduced little boy Ethan, where the first time we saw him at the end of nature, he puts on that gas mask. Yeah. And you have this reaction as an audience that, you know, I mean, it's the same thing as as the, seeing the main antagonist wearing a mask. It's scary, mm-hmm. you know? Like, you know, when Cassie talks about the Edgar Allan Poe story and her grandfather would read to her that it's scary, like a figure wearing a mask that you can't see, there's something inherently frightening about that because you don't know what you're up against. Um, and they do that with little boy Ethan in nature and they do it again at the end with James Callis. And it's obviously also really dramatic, right, to have him whip the mask off and it ties into because the witness always wears a mask so they're totally setting us up right for like the big villain reveal but then that's not who he really is (laughs) so yeah 
Um, and I'm sure we are remi- – I feel like we're probably missing like 50 other examples of masks. I know. There but, are so yeah. many masks in this show. Like that – That it just struck me when we were like, oh, we're doing the episode called Masks and there is, of course, very obvious masks. And then I was like, wait a minute. Actually, <laughs> this goes deeper. <laughs> I know. Um, which yeah. is always the case for this show. But um, but it was fun to, to think up all those examples and how they pretty – they use it very consistently. Yeah, they do. And it's like how they're telling their story, but also the imagery with the show. All right. So let's go to 1879. Um, Sebastian and young man, Ethan, hiding out in 1879 London. Do you guys have any sort of initial reactions to seeing how they've been, you know, how Ethan grew up with Sebastian? Um, and, and we'll just let's take that first and we'll get to sort of the the huge mythology moment with the word of the witness next. My only very small uh, thing that amuses me and I enjoy is the fact that um, Ethan has a has had a tetanus shot in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Aaron would be I, so pleased. <laughs> I really enjoy that because it's 1879 and they, he's had his, his tetanus shot in 1987 and it just completely, <laughs> there are a few moments in this episode that like really mess with me time-wise, which is really fun because like they, um, th- this is one of them with, I know we'll go down the rabbit hole with, uh, with Poe later, um, with you that, but that's another one of them. Like, d- do you know when Poe died? No. 1849. So this is like 30. So, I mean, when they go back and they're talking about the whole story and everything in 1899, it's already been 50 years <laughs> since he died and they're for, like it's it's just one of those things that like the tetanus shot it's just it stands out and it, it messes with me in a good way <laughs> and I enjoy it yeah um, and it's also like a brain puzzle because right? 18, eight, 1987 is just scrambling 1879 yep <laughs> you know like, <laughs> oh, wait oh, and I it's see just like did. such a like random but pleasing fact to put in there <laughs> right like I right. already feel better about his chances he might yes. be the bad guy maybe but still um yeah now i think it's interesting that they're you know obviously it's really smart on sebastian's part to be hiding out in the 1800s right because it's tech free that'd be much harder for the army of the 12 monkeys um to find them but what i think is what what i think is funny is now that now when you watch this episode and we know olivia is the witness the real witness knew where he was, right? Or like mm-hmm. at least in 1899 knew where Ethan was. Um and if she wanted to come get him, she could have. But right, she needs the cycle. <laughs> she needs everything to go. So they they are hiding out from sort of probably the pallid man faction of the faithful. Um uh, since you know Sebastian's the only guardian left, but um, you know I think it's kind of funny because it's like yes, it's a really good place to hide, but also the real witness isn't re- actually looking for you. <laughs> um, but um, I there's a part. I mean, I love I love as I said, I love this actor. I, I love Rupert Graves, and he brings such a sort of um, like decency. Um, to the role, which, you know, was in the younger man version that we saw in Nurture. Um, you know, there's clearly affection between the two of them. He has spent his entire life raising this boy, um, like living back in the 1800s and jumping from place to place, but both 
I mean, his religious faith is a little bit different, but I mean, he still believes that Ethan is the witness witness Mm -hmm. and will bring about the Red Forest. But unlike, (laughs) in contrast to Magdalena, um, (laughs) he, you know, I thought it was really interesting that he has Ethan working as a dock worker. Um, and says only a man who has had nothing can understand what wielding that power can mean. Um, which like reminds me of like the Dr. Erskine, uh, Captain America thing, right? You pick the weakling, right? To make him the strong man. If you're going to pick somebody who's powerful, you make him work on the docks where he gets pushed around. Um, and obviously, uh, it, it worked, right? I mean, I think Ethan is always been sort of like an empathetic boy, and he's primary. And Sebastian raised him, and he tells Cassian Cole later, like your your son is kind, but he's also someone who, when he's at a ball, isn't f- concerned with the aristocrats or the wealthy people. He's focused on the pauper, right? Mm-hmm. He's focused on the man that raised him. Um, I think what's so. what's really nice about like what you were saying that their affection and and what makes a difference with Sebastian versus maybe the other people is that it's very clear that Sebastian sees and treats Ethan not as the witness but as an individual like as Ethan I think that makes a huge difference in like you know yes they they there's a huge betrayal and they they don't see each other for a very long time but i think in the in the formative years of ethan mm-hmm. uh, one is the the thing where yes he has him work as a dock worker and um he's really trying to instill like you know you're going to have this power but you you really need to understand what it's like to not have any power like that that there's that part of it but i think it's really important that even with the the religious aspect of it aside, he treats Ethan as as a person, just like as a person that that he likes and that he cares about, and and that I think makes a huge difference in Ethan seeing other people as people, <laughs> and not just like this primary who is kind of apart from them, apart from people, and like therefore people don't matter or anything. Like I think that that allows Ethan to see other people as people <laughs> said that way yeah. to sure. but- I mean look at the other guardians they didn't even like he didn't even have a name mm-hmm. right they just called him like the witness like he's not he wasn't a person to them he was like essentially an object even though the, like they were you know deifying him it's like he had no autonomy whatsoever right mm-hmm. and and the whole like ritual of the tent um and kind of purging everyone else is the opposite right is that people don't at least in this moment, until you achieve the Red Forest, right? People don't matter. Um, and Sebastian's sort of teaching him the opposite. There do exist examples of of this um, this kind of story that they're telling where um, people will um, deify like a child, essentially. And like, it's, it's, it's never like, it becomes clear kind of that it's like, that that person is a stand-in and so that it can I feel like the way that they've shown this happening with Ethan it like it can really mess with your mind because you're not you're not a person to them and and so as a child maybe you're not a person to yourself like you don't you don't you stop seeing yourself that way and so I think it's really important that he gets this like long amount of time where um just one person focuses on him the person and like raises him as as a friend and and as a caretaker. So I, I think it's very important for him. Yeah, but I mean, but the tragedy of you know Sebastian only has a f- um, the older Sebastian mm-hmm. only has a few scenes, but sort of the tragedy of it is we see how he's devoted his life to Ethan, um, 
And then I can't remember, is it is it Sebastian at the end of the episode that has the line about how we can we find ourselves betraying our friends for our beliefs? Yes, yep. And that um is sort of this it mirrors what's going on with Project Splinter. Um and Deacon and Jones' deep sense of betrayal most directed at for Deacon, I think, for Cass with Cassie and for Jones with Cole, um, and then Jennifer at mm-hmm. the end of the episode. But, you know, what happens between Sebastian and Ethan is that Sebastian's religious faith ultimately leads him to try and bring Ethan back to Titan, which Ethan then views as a betrayal, yes. and he never sees him again. Um, he's stranded for 20 years and finally gets to the night in 1899, and Ethan is there the whole time. And then Sebastian dies before ever seeing him again. And it's really when you go back and watch this sort of like, you know, paternal domestic scene between the two of them, it's just one other little tragedy in all of the tragedies in 12 Monkeys, you know? Um, but this one between the adopted father um, and sort of the adopted son. So it's just really sad when you go back and think about it. You're like, man, you're about to get abandoned yeah. and then you will never see him again. And Ethan knows when he dies. So he knows this too. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And he doesn't, obviously, you know, maybe part of it is being primary and not wanting to screw with the timeline and all of that, right? And respecting that. But also, like, he had an opportunity for 20 years knowing when he was going to die and never talk to him again. Like, that is cold. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so that, obviously, we see Ethan being, like, physically pained and plagued by the visions like Jennifer like we've seen Jennifer and then we get to sort of this I can't like huge mythology moment right we've been looking at we've seen glimpses of the word of the witness since mid-season two and we we watch Sebastian offer a quill and you're like oh my god <laughs> is he is he and you know it's funny because he describes you know Ethan feels like you know the burden of it and Sebastian it now reminds me of um Chorus's father in stark contrast um to Jennifer's father views the voices in Chorus's head as a gift and so when Sebastian says being primary is beautiful um you're part of nature and offers him the quill like how how sort of beautiful that is in 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 giving him this way to sort of calm his mind and express that through art rather than when he was a child and they were like extracting these drawings from him you know like so you know i just think it's it's interesting that like we thought that the word of the witness and, and we still think it's sort of the master plan of the villain um but we come to learn that it was actually a tool that a, you know, adopted father gave his adopted son to try and ease the burden of being a primary and and give order to it. Um, Well, we see this backstory, it gives a lot of uh, credibility to what Cassie's mom was saying about the document. Yeah, absolutely. Even Um, if that's what they use it for, you know, ultimately is like the plan and the whatever, like, that's not what it was set out. That's not 
the intention. Mm-hmm. Right. And by his teacher, right? So like all those references in it um, that, that, that the psychologist Dr. Raley went through of, of art and music, right? Like Sebastian is the one who taught Ethan all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like who would have thought that when we saw the word of the witness and it was, you know, like – the way we first saw it in bodies of water, that it actually was the product of this like affectionate moment between an adopted father and son, you know? What I really liked about this scene was that I think like leading up to this point, we're expecting the word of the witness to be like, it's, you know, it's going to be either this like dramatic creation moment of that document, or it's going to be some like big turning point or something like that. And, and it turns out to be just this like kind of everyday scene, like he's always getting visions and Sebastian's kind of always telling him like, it's okay, it's a gift. And and like, I, I just I loved that it was, it was like almost like a balloon popping like this balloon that's been like growing and like this tension about that the the word of the witness the document and everything and it's been so vital and yet like when you see it actually being made it's just sort of this like this moment in their day and he just makes it and it's so quick and it's like that scene is over with like it's such a quick scene and you're like oh my gosh there it is that that happened and now now it got created this whole this thing that has the whole plan of the whole show or like of the whole story in it i just liked how it was so quick and like kind of almost mundane because he knows that this he that Ethan suffers these visions and like it, it was just well done that it was almost too quick and you're like wait that's so important but it, it just happened in their life and it's over right because it's an importance that other people have given exactly, to it. yeah right right yeah um if we can go through so as he's drawing it um the visions that he sees um, so obviously he writes down Jennifer Cole Cassie, which is like, oh my God, we first saw those in season two. And they were looking at those in like, like mm-hmm. 2015, right? Like it's yeah. crazy when you think about it. You're like, Jennifer was looking at that and like, right? Bodies of water. They're back in like 2015. Um, you know, and, and it was on the bulletin board when they were in 1960s Berlin, right? And now, but now he's sitting here and making it in 1879. Um, so the the visions that we see when we are inside Ethan's head, um, which we will we now know are he sees Cole when he will is the one other time he interacted with his father when Cole is like in full post-apocalypse scav, scav yeah. mode yeah scav <laughs> mode um he sees cassie at the bedside of her first patient that died and he's about to have that really formative conversation um, with her um a serpent eating its tail he sees the house of cedar and pine um and then he sees sebastian's death um which you know we will understand what that means at the end of the episode but it also means that it's just Sebastian's death and the whole reason why Team Splinter is at this masquerade ball is just another loop. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's just like it's another loop. He dies because they're there and Ethan sees it because he died because they're there. And so he writes it on the word of the witness and then that's why they're there. It's inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> ah, right. in, a, in a story where they tell you that time can change, but there are some things that are the inner loops. There are many inner loops that are just inevitable. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. If you guys have anything else, then we'll go. We have so many years to hop oh, to gosh. this episode. Oh my God. Um, 1945. It's V Day. 
Tell me your thoughts on this really fun train scene. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. This hurts my heart. This isn't fun. It is fun. Oh, it's great. I love watching. I hate it. I love it. I do really enjoy this. I do. I love two coals beating up Deacon. I'm sorry, Uh, B. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I feel like Deacon and Cole have been cruising for a fist fight for like two two seasons and it's kind of fun particularly because Todd Stashwick is just really funny with him being like are you kidding me right like the way he plays it um I think it's really fun and I love the little salute at the end like they can't catch up to them and what's so great about it is that you know the guardians were the ones who had the jump on our heroes at the beginning of the season right mm-hmm. with the splinter suits and you're like man how are they ever going to like beat these guys when they have these splinter suits and now we're seeing Cassie and Cole be able to use them like even to their like benefit in a fight um somebody raised a really good question that i don't have an answer to knowing that this episode was coming up is whether the second coal that appears in the fight, is that like a remainder? The way that we would see remainders of Magdalena? Or is that future asshole coming to help out in the fight? And I don't know the answer to that. Do you guys? I thought he no, was No, doing- and I didn't see that question, but I wondered that too. I wondered if, um, yeah, I-, I wondered what that was about. Or if it was the fact that he was going like so fast, traveling, you know, so fast with his splintering that he was just kind of like still there. Yeah. Yeah, because like, he couldn't he couldn't be a well, he doesn't create a paradox when he's near himself. Right? Like my my question was like was he just traveling like 5 minutes, but if he was near himself, wouldn't that be a problem? No, the suits uh, stopped that. Right. Oh. Right. Okay. I totally forgot that. So yeah. So my thought was that he was doing like 5 minute jumps to get because he knew where he knew the future him knew where Oh, God, my head hurts. (laughs) Oh, so I get what you're saying. So it's like when he saw himself in – it's just like Future Asshole or when he saw himself at um, outside of the mansion in Nurture, it's not a – isn't that a remain – Maybe, yeah. Because he splintered (laughs) forward a couple of minutes because he knew what move Deacon was going to make. Or he splintered Mm -hmm. back in time a couple of minutes because he knew what move he had made before and therefore could fight him better if he moved – a couple of minutes in the past and there were two of him. But isn't isn't it still just him though at the end of all that, all the loop-de-loop? Isn't it still just one of him so long as he follows the same path? Because like the reason that Magdalena and those guys would like, you know, kill themselves essentially when they came back is because they were trying to create like a different future. They were oh, trying to diverge. Uh-huh. Because something changed. Yeah, right. And so it, then right. that person would like not exist and that creates a problem. Yeah. So he would still live out the mini loop because he just moved into a different spot and he's just continuing himself. Right, right. (laughs) We're seeing him linearly, but he's just like going, he's just bouncing and going and doing whatever. So even if he came back a second ago, well, that one that, you know, was the one that's about to go forward in a minute, Mm -hmm. like it all just kind of, he's still one person. Okay. Yes. I, that, that's our – I'm sorry, listener. That's our best shot. <laughs> <laughs> that's our best shot. Uh, I do much better with uh, themes. But, um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, okay. but I'm sure there's somebody with knowledge that knows. So if somebody knows the answer, maybe they can chime in. Um, I, this is really fun because this is the first time we get to see Hannah – 
in costume up. yeah, yeah. I was, like to, in two costumes i also really enjoy seeing deacon in costumes like in mm-hmm. the, i just everyone in those ball costumes definitely but like these um the train the train costumes are great too like it's just fun to see them um oh i wanted to say one thing about like i really liked because i just mentioned deacon and it was a note that he says when he when he um when he takes a drink which is about his grandfather mm-hmm. um dying in world war Two, and i one of the things that because this story is so like not linear in like episode to episode or jumping back and forth in time but kind of if you take a step back and look at everybody chronologically i really like how they place deacon in various time periods because you can like really see his story very linearly. Like you can see when he's young, you can see when he's with Cole and they're, they're scavs and like you can see now this part connects him with, um, with World War II. Like he feels very real relative to the other people, which, and I don't know why that feels that way. Jones is probably the other person that I feel like that about. Like they feel very, um, tethered. Like you have a comprehensive yeah. history yes, of them. Yeah. There's like a yeah. very, um, Exactly. The, the the history that they give you, it's like you can you can put all the pieces together and it's like very tethered to time periods that we maybe understand. And that's why um, I don't know. I just I really like that they place Deacon in time like that every once in a while. Yeah. And Deacon is always going to take a swig of a drink if he's got a chance. Right. Like He's been asking for whiskey when he's the post apocalypse. So there's booze in 1945 right there. He's going to he's going to partake. I mean, uh-huh. he does become the owner and proprietor of a bar in the future yep. that is happy. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I just love I love the sort of like, um, North by Northwest, like, um, cat, like, chasing people like Deacon's just shooting the gun at Cassie in the middle of the train like Deacon in this episode is a little bit of a and and I get it right like he is he has given up the West 7 he has given up everything he say he obviously has feelings for Cassie um even if that's sort of right like Mm -hmm. in the past or whatever but like he saved her and she shot him and he is seething in this episode and he is like uh, like I love Deacon and I love the like pathos he has and he can be so funny but in this episode the way he stalks them it reminds you that Deacon can be scary mm-hmm. you know like he's he just freaking shoots through the window to like shoot to kill Cassie and later on when he's going to try and find them like at the masquerade you're like dude I totally believe that Deacon would like put a bullet in their head right now like you forget that he's got he can be I think he can be scary like that um and so he's not in a good place in this episode um which if you guys don't have anything else about the train ride takes us to 2046 um do you guys yeah. have any initial thoughts on sort of our first scene in the war room um, where maybe people are starting to be a little suspicious about Jennifer? So I think this is – People need to yeah. get off Jennifer's back. <laughs> That's what I think about that. Well, but they're right. Mm-hmm. She is withholding it. She is protecting Cassie and Cole. She has been. She has been since the 80s. I'm not um, saying they're not right. It's just like – Sometimes it's difficult, and I, and I think this is true of both Jennifer and Deacon. It's kind of like the same thing that he's going through with, like, look at everything I do. It's like they expect so much out of her, you know? They're just like, oh, go over there and suffer, and we want your pictures. Tell us where to go. Like, Aww. I don't know. Just, her poor, and yeah, I feel it really seems bad. seems sad for sometimes. Here. 
I feel yeah. awful for her. She's stuck in like basically the worst position of all of them right now because it's like she's she doesn't want to, you know, this comes back too to like her empathy and the way she connects with people. She doesn't want to hurt anybody. And that's impossible in well, this and situation. She's- Right, she's she's between a rock and a hard place, and she's trying to protect Cassie and Cole. She's trying to help them, but you know she makes clear like she's like this shouldn't even be a fight. They are our friends, mm-hmm. um, and she's pointing out the real truth of this. Right, like first of all, what they're all—I mean, what we now know—is what they're all fighting about. Number one isn't the real problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number no. two isn't true, and they're and they're tearing each other apart trying to kill Cassie and Cole's son when Cassie and Cole's son is not the actual witness. The real witness they're letting out of the fucking cage and trusting in this episode. So you're like, oh my god, they're like tearing each other apart, and everyone feels betrayed. And they are just walking into Olivia's plan. But the best part... Oh, sorry. Go go for it. Yeah. No, I mean, like, both this season three Olivia's plan, um, who who just thinks she's about to pull off a coup and kill Ethan and she gets to run things, but also future witness Olivia, right? Like, who... Who's sending herself to go do all of this, right? So it's just so painful watching how everyone is so hurt and betrayed and like feels like you know jennifer's caught in the middle and all of it is really for nothing because it's not what the real fight should be i so i do love in this what about jennifer in this episode is that although yeah like you said it's like it sucks there's so much sucks for her but at the same time she has a couple of moments of like real victory and real joy (laughs) in this episode which i Mm -hmm. always enjoy Um, yes but at are all slightly crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like setting off a paradox, an explosion. It's all blowing shit up. Like she's going to let the tortoises, like she's going to set the strawberry bait and blow shit up in the middle of their facility. She's going to set fucking fireworks off inside in the middle of a ball, right? So it's all very much Jennifer and it's like amazing moments where like shit is blowing up and she's doing the distraction and getting away or she's like she's she's graduated from doing a distraction dance to doing distraction explosions but like um it's all a little so amazing yeah (laughs) i wait there's one more thing about the war room that i really enjoy is that um the like slightest mention of all the other places they have been because i know who doesn't want to watch those episodes now (laughs) well it's funny that you say that because um yeah i mean they give you uh, some hints with cassie being like stop following us Mm -hmm. right or jones detailing everywhere they've been all over the world in all different time frames but um i believe when terry metallis was on he said that you know if they had more episodes then this Time, this era of the show where team it's half of Team Splinter versus the other half of Team Splinter would have been more episodes. Ooh, like we would have okay. had episodes with like Deacon and Hannah trying to find Cassie and Cole and Cassie and Cole trying to find Ethan when they don't have the normal tools at their disposal. And so that was a place 
in the story where if they had had, I don't know, say like maybe five seasons, I guess, then we would have seen more of this. So yeah, it's a shorthand for it. Um, but I mean, you know, it's a great, like, it's a great fanfic prompt or mm-hmm. like, <laughs> what's the graphic novel of Team Splinter versus Team Splinter and all of those time periods? Yeah. It was very smart for them to start bouncing around like all over the place to kind of throw them off and then start backtracking so that nobody really understood why they were there. Yeah. yeah. Why don't... Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, Can we take that little Olivia and Jones scene um, before we jump to the rest of (laughs) Jennifer? Um, My my sort of like impression watching this now is the the level – if you compare to the way they were interacting in um, 303 Enemy, there's like this level of – joking around and comfort between the two of them that is a it might be the most they're comfortable around each other does that make sense mm-hmm. olivia and jones right like what would you do if you were me quit smoking right they're like it's kind of i mean i like we've already gone down the rabbit hole of of uh the flirtiness between the two of them <laughs> But, but I mean, you know, it's uh, – Jones is getting fucking played, <laughs> you know? Like um, – and that culminates with her letting her out of the cage. Um, and, you know, when you get to the end of this episode and it's Olivia out of the cage and Jennifer in it, you know that things are really fucked. <laughs> like, you, it should have been a big warning sign. Um, did you guys have any thoughts sort of about their interaction? So all of the – here's the thing like there are you said that you had gone down the rabbit hole before there's like several scenes with olivia and jones talking to each other kind of this way very casually but i think just as much as it shows that jones is maybe you know yes she's getting played and um yes olivia is being you know is is manipulating her but i think it also shows how easily jones can walk the line of like if you were just somebody else or just on some other team in the show jones would be your bad guy mm interesting i just i yeah. feel like it it shows them in a way that like one could easily be the other like it really puts them on like an equal footing just as much as you can see that like Jones is trying to trying to play Olivia and like they're they're you know they're kind of manipulating each other's humanity each other each other's weaknesses and stuff especially later but I I feel like that's something that I enjoy that they are both they can both be very dark (laughs) and yeah (laughs) um yes you don't know that Olivia is the witness yet but I mean we do now in hindsight but like I I think it it's it's very eerie the way they do that um and uh, yeah, I really like it. <laughs> yeah, like there's something that they recognize in the other. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And I mean, Jones is quite um Jones is fucking mad. Mm-hmm. She's mad yeah. or or smad. Yeah. <laughs> like sad mad. Betrayed. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, she um there's some tough Jones moments and yeah. she is threatening and she slaps Jennifer. I mean, this is and we and we know, you know, we'll get to that scene. We know at the core what that hurt is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's coming from like an emotional hurt of feeling betrayed ultimately by Cole. Um, but but yeah, it is kind of like a scary, like it reminds you of like I love Jones, but this exactly. Jones Same. is also yeah. but Jones is also the one who murdered everyone at Project Spearhead, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like so yeah. That Jones um, exists. Exactly. It's like it should it's it should be a little uncomfortable almost. 
Right. Yeah. All right. The Jennifer and Deacon scene. Beep. All you. Beep, go. What are your thoughts? I feel like I'm just going to keep getting mad. (laughs) I don't like it when they fight. (laughs) I don't like it. I don't. They're just. No. They're supposed to be besties. Deacon Deacon's in a in a bad place for he's sure. In a really bad place, right? Like he's very he- much reminding me of the time whenever he ended up off with the foreman, you know, and then kind of came back. It's like he's eerily calm in the way that you know he's gonna like rip somebody's insides out, and that mm-hmm. to me is like the scariest Deacon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is scary Deacon. Um, I mean, and I and I I say that not because I don't. You know, he 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 was the fucking scav king. He had like as good a life as you could have in the apocalypse, right? Mm-hmm. Um they most of most of the West Seven, I I, I believe they said in earlier episodes, um at, at the end of season two, they abandoned him. Um, like right with the red storms. And so he's now all in on this mission. Cassie and Cole. Cole, the brother that he, like, the replacement brother that he wanted. Cassie, the woman that he was in love with and rejected him. And then he saved her anyway. And the only reason why she's back, even in a position to shoot him, is because he saved her life, right? Like a <laughs> titan. Um, And they fucked him over, right? And shot him, right? Like, you, and then it turns out that all of this bullshit, including the fucking post-apocalypse, is because of their son, you would be so mad, right? And so when Jennifer is like, this is wrong, and Deacon is like, there is no right. And I am like done with people being like, oh, he, you can fucking change. No, right? Like we are what we are. Like he's done. And on the other hand, Jennifer is making some really good points. You know, she's like, yeah, well, if you're the one who taught her how to shoot, how come she missed all your vital organs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's a really, I totally understand both points of view, which is why it probably hurts, like, to watch them. Yeah, right? and th- there's a lot going on. There are a lot of admissions over these kind of, like, toward the end of, of season three. There's a, there's a lot of fatigue, battle fatigue mm-hmm. going on. You know, Cole has mentioned, like, he wants it to be over. Like, And I feel like part of the reason that Jones and even Deacon are landing on, like, it's so clear and it's whatever. Because it's like, if we can just get this one thing done, we don't have to make these damn decisions anymore. Mm-hmm. They do look so weary. Like, I mean, that, uh, you know, I don't mean that they, they look tired or anything. They, they just look so weary. Like, this is every time they cut to, um, even Cassie and Cole when they're, when they're escaping with their, um, splinter suits. But I think even, even with Deacon not being willing to, like, obviously Jennifer makes that very, like, she did miss his vital organs and you can see it register and you can see that he knows she's right. But he's just so over it because he's, he's like, this is, there is no end otherwise. Like, you know, we're, we're just betraying each other and I have, like, he's lost everything. Like, you can, you can very much, very much see it from both points of view, but we also know as the audience that you know, believe Jennifer. <laughs> and so it's also really sad because you're Always like, Deacon, believe Jennifer. And like he, the fact that he's trying to convince her and himself that he doesn't feel guilty anymore, that he killed old Jennifer. Like, it's just, it's so hard to watch him because you were both like, I get where you're coming from, but I also want to shake you because Jennifer is always right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but the, also, so, uh, okay, here's the thing. Jennifer is not being completely truthful with him. True. So in the war room, when he was like, 
uh, you know, like your third eye's been lazy. Um, she, you see when she draws, you know, like w- she knows exactly where to find Cassie and Cole, right? She is holding out on them. She is holding out on Deacon. And so you if have- If someone this- was treating you like that, you might be holding out on them too. Well- you know what I mean? That goes back to what I was saying. He's like, oh, you've been lazy. Like, they turn around and they they don't give her enough credit for what she does do. And they blame her for shit when it goes wrong. Like, Yeah, but, but they're right. She is lying to them. Like, I love Jennifer, but she's holding out on them. And they think that- I'm just saying I can understand why she is. I mean, she 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 thinks that their approach is wrong. And she loves Cassie and Cole. And, uh, you know, like- whether Jennifer obviously hasn't figured this all out, she doesn't know that Ethan's not the witness. Her line of who she's not going to sacrifice for the for the cause for the mission super nay, <laughs> super nay, are, are, are Cassie and Cole right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know when De- the thing that's very consistent character wise for Deacon is when he describes you know Cole took us into that house, but when he saw his boy automatically makes you think of Ramsey, right? Sure. Like, so, and, and Deacon always had a problem with Ramsey because he always thought what Ramsey did was incredibly selfish. And so it's consistent that he would view, oh my God, now fucking Cassie and Cole are doing that? Like, there's a there's an apocalypse outside, Yeah, for right? Deacon, because- things are just repeating over and over again. It's like, Deacon is really experiencing, I mean, today is the best day to say it, the whole all of this has happened and all of this will happen again situation because it's yeah. very similar. And he's- Just he's, to bring it back to guys' right? Yeah, (laughs) And so he's because all of this is like he's seeing it happen again and he can't do anything about it. So he's taking it very personally. And what what I like is you see a few sparks and there's I mean, because they mention old Jennifer, there are a few sparks of old Jennifer here where she's like kind of knowledgeably withholding information from them because she knows they're going the way they're going to use it. Um, is wrong or they it's just not time for them to know it yet like i i liked that they they call back on old jennifer and jennifer is behaving that way mm. yeah In like an yeah, omniscient yeah. kind of one way. of the other things yeah. though that uh, one of the other things that nobody knows not i mean neither really cast nobody knows is that jennifer is the only one who's actually had a conversation with ethan right Ooh, like right. a substantive one yeah right right yeah so she has some evidence that he is a primary like her and that they're both trying to get at the same problem because they were like, what do the symbols mean? And he was like, I don't know either. Um, but I think you'll figure it out. Yeah, Beep, that's a really good point. But again, she doesn't tell them that. Yeah. And they're both, I mean, both Jones and Deacon are reacting the same way. And that's why they're so easy to lie to and to manipulate at the moment because they're both seething with like personal burns as opposed to like really seeing anything um, kind of logically, which is very interesting because Jones is supposed to be kind of, you know, the, the, the most logical in the situation. And, and Deacon is always like, oh, I'm, I'm fair and I, I like fight from, you know, like he, he is not exactly biased by a lot either. But right now they're both really dealing with personal issues and that's why they're behaving the way they are. Well, ex- except that I think they actually are being logical. Um, if you, they're operating under the same, um, assumption that, that the show began with, right? Like, you have to kill someone 
to reset everything. And who that has to be has shifted over time. But you don't think having seen that they but can change time? But it's not their time? person, and that's why it's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that- it's not their person, but they have, they, like, uh, okay, like, Jennifer did not share with them, like, nobody, like, Cassie and Cole didn't explain anything that they knew about Ethan, what the psychologist said, right? Like, Jones cut Cassie off and Cassie like tried to explain to Jones, but like they don't have it. They're not the audience. They don't have any of that information. Jennifer hasn't told them, oh, I had a mind conversation with little boy Ethan. And he's also trying, she hasn't told them that. So I, I mean, Jones and, and Deacon are operating with the amount, like a, li- a lesser sort of universe of information than the audience has, that Cassie and Cole have, that Jennifer have. Um, and so I, I actually think given what they know, of course there's an emotional component. Of course there is. And you, and perhaps that is what makes them unwilling to change course even later on when talking to Cassie and Cole, although Jones does offer them clemency, but only if she gets to still do what she wants, right? That's <laughs> for you. Right. But, 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 I, but I, I do think they're being logical, I, given what they know. I will say that I, I, I kind of disagree with that because I, I think that, like, to me, it seems very much like they are, re- like, overreacting. Yes, they have a certain amount of knowledge, but the way they're reacting seems one like they're, you know, they're taking this very personally, which understandable because you know why they are, because they both feel betrayed for various reasons. But I also think, like, yes, this is the limited knowledge that they know, but they also all know that they have changed the timeline before. And so it's very mm-hmm. interesting that they are not willing to at least try with the fact like after learning the fact that this is Cassie and Cole's son um, because they are still seething from those betrayals I think because they they have experienced time changing yes it didn't change a lot maybe it only um, moved it like a couple of years forward but they know it's possible and so I so I think it's really interesting that they are not even willing to try initially because um, and I think that it's because they are reacting to the betrayals as opposed to the... Well, the whole thing is Cole and Cassie's fault when it comes back to that. (laughs) They didn't Mm -hmm. tell anybody, you know what I mean? And now it's like, okay, they're the enemies. Mm -hmm. And if you really think about it, I mean, part of it is because that's kind of the only road they have. But like, this team is now more interested in hunting them than the witness. Yeah, but okay. So, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. No, you're not. No, no. <laughs> you think something yeah. different. Okay. No, 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 no. No, <laughs> no, be, no, totally no, no. They no. did do. They were in the wrong I'm, as well because they should have trusted them too. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm no, no, no. I, I, I was actually about a different point because in this episode, I'm not rooting for Jones and Deacon. I'm I'm rooting mm-hmm. for Cassie and Cole, right? But just to play devil's advocate, um, they they only have on the word of the witness a certain list of places and dates where they could possibly find Ethan. They all, including Cassie and Cole, believe that at least according to like the destiny on the word of the witness, he has the potential to be the person that brings about not only the apocalypse, but the end of the fucking universe. Those are the stakes now, right? And so you have a list on the word of the witness of, what, 15 places and times that he could be. And you want to risk that? That you can convince him to not be the witness when, when what, like, the stakes on the other side are the end of the universe? Like, that seems like a good plan. That seems like a really fucking bad plan. 
So I don't think I don't think Deacon like obviously it's wrong. Obviously it's not with like the themes of the show, right? Like killing someone's never the answer, saving someone is all of that. And I love the show is not ultimately about like well, it is killing Olivia, but like I love that it's not. <laughs> but I love right. I love that the answer at the end, like thematically, is is to not make that choice. But I don't think Deacon and Jones. Yes, there's emotion. I don't think they're being illogical. I think if I were sitting in a room and you told me, "Look, here are the stakes. Uh, it's the fate of the universe, and we got 15 chances to meet up with this guy. Should we try and convince him to be a good guy, or should we take him out?" I think I would say take him out. Like, I don't think that's illogical. I think so. the best part is that you can say that when you sit in their po- in their seat, and then you exactly. can think the exact opposite when you sit in Cassie and Cole's seat. Absolutely. Being their Absolutely. son. Like, it's, it's really, it's, it's excellent in that way because it's not really a, you know, it's not really a debate because they're both right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm cheering based for Cassie and Cole. Based on their information. Yeah. yeah, definitely based on the the information that they have. And Cassie and Cole equally have an emotional investment because it's their son. Like it's – Right. So it's – they're also behaving also very logically if you think about it, but also very like completely emotionally and over the top as well. Right. And Jennifer is both – um, has clues that she hasn't divulged, as B pointed out to anyone, that Ethan may be a key to solving this, right? And, and working with, like, and believes that she's important to solving it, right? But there's an emotional component for Jennifer. She's protecting Cassie and Cole because they're her friends. The same that she did when she covered up the House of Cedar and Pine on the Word of Witness when she was making the photocopy. It's a, it's an emotional choice because she loves Cassie and Cole, right? And for everyone, there's a logical layer to it and an emotional layer to it. And that's why it's so good. And we've just been yelling at each other about it. <laughs> I think there is a lot more to say, though. It, or not a lot more to say, but a lot more to, to glean in, in from Jones and Deacon in the sense that, I mean, Jones just sat there in front of the last episode and gave this, like, amazing monologue on what it means, you know, to go after a child and what this and that. And was, like, having all of these, you know... um, kind of crisis of faith and conscious and all this and now it's like oh kill that fucker yeah well it's a man <laughs> i mean it's a man well, they don't know that they don't know that yeah and, I mean, well, and like what hurts he could is- be like eight minutes older <laughs> <laughs> well what hurts is the fact that she says her betrayal and we're not even at that scene yet but we're freaking out but no but she says at the end that her biggest betrayal is the fact that she refers to cole as a son and mm-hmm. at the same time yep. it has this like emotional block of not seeing why he's behaving the way he is and he right. her grandson no i'm just <laughs> <laughs> but like it's it's so it's so wild to see her be like this was the biggest betrayal by my son and then like being like but wait a minute like he's trying to save his son like how do you not see this mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> right? like, so it's, good it's yes brutal yes. to watch it my son has betrayed me let's kill his son for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah man it's like i mean you know there's a lot of like you know the godfather and all like operates on, on all of those like you know you kill mine i kill yours right but i mean the other the other one thing that i wanted to point out about this jennifer and deacon scene um which obviously man we i didn't expect to go down this rabbit hole but we're fired up um (laughs) deacon when deacon says he doesn't believe people can change um you know it's a thread that runs throughout this episode it is obviously like when it comes to deacon's arc um 
who he was, who he chooses to be, how they play with the audience, um, like expectation of you know, is Deacon going to be like, is he really working with the bad guys in season four, right? Like, and ultimately, he chooses to be the kind of person that, like, fights for his friends and sacrifices his life for this cause, um, and isn't sort of like this, like, doesn't stick with being the sociopath, like, who's just like, you know, the weak, uh, can't inherit the earth type of person that we first met in season one. Um, that that line hits you in a kind of a different way now that we know where his arc ends up. Um, and also is obviously echoing sort of thematically the bigger question with respect to Ethan. Um, should we go to Jennifer making a break for it and just shout about the fucking hero that is Lasky? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lasky. <laughs> Speaking of Funko Pops, I want like the Lasky Funko Pops so I can just make him go super nay. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite line right after Jennifer goes, like with the gun. <laughs> oh fang- my God. The finger gun. <laughs> uh, oh, it's so great. Like, I love how it, I mean, you know, like, uh, first of all, like, let's just have a moment of silence for the tortoises. Oh. Little Terry the tortoise and Big Terry the tortoise are are no longer with us. Um, the the conspiracy board is back, but the tortoises are gone. Um, but you know that whole scene is just so. There's just so much comedy, and I love the actor who plays Lasky, and he's just like, well, it would have to be a gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Even at the end, where he's like, well, she had a gun, and, and it's he like actually so goes so far. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. yes. Yeah, he actually goes so far as to tell Jones that. And it's like, she literally just held up both of her fingers flipping you off. Like, she does not have a fucking gun. Oh, my God, the double bird to the story. (laughs) Oh, my God, the double birds. The double birds as Jennifer splinters away. It's such a true Jennifer scene. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And I love, there's so many. I feel like, Beep, I, I need you to make gifts of all of the epic Jones's fucking mad faces in this episode <laughs> so that I can just use them when people like bad things happen or people are assholes on Twitter. Um, I just want that mad like when she flips Jones. Oh my god. She fucking set off an explosion in Jones's facility, uses Jones's machine to thwart Jones and flips her off as she leaves and Jones's face is so mad. <laughs> and just like think about Jennifer's trajectory from here. She goes back in time, clearly is on her own, finds an elaborate costume and fireworks and shows yes! up to a ball where you need money. Like Jennifer <laughs> is a mastermind. <laughs> like, I Except her plan is to fucking set fire. I right, mean, like it required a ton of planning to get to that point, and yet she gets to that point and is like, "Well, time to blow shit up, I guess." <laughs> Absolutely, it's I just love it. Amazing, like she's dressed so elaborately. I like. I almost wonder how many days she like. When did she tell Lasky to send her, and like how many days of planning she had <laughs> to make Absolutely. that happen. Yeah, it's got like unbelievable that like brocade like it mm-hmm. looks like, yeah, it's so it's great. It looks like yeah. Um the interesting okay. thing is and I I would say this, she didn't actually need to reveal herself. Mm-hmm. Oh true, yeah. Well, they might have thought she was Ethan. Are you are you talking about the end? Yeah, yeah, let mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Are we ready to go to 1899? <laughs> are we ready for casserole date I'm prepared. <laughs> I'm ready. What did I say? My body is ready. <laughs> um, if you had, like, if you had told me when I was watching this show in seasons one or two that I would get to see Cassie and Cole in Victorian clothes with Cole teaching Cassie how to pick pockets and Cassie teaching Cole how to dance, I like, this is like a fucking fanfic. fever dream. It's fanfic. <laughs> and I mean that, I mean that in, in the, the best, best way. way. Exactly. In the best way. Because I feel like sometimes people use that yeah. in a derogatory no, way. No, it's, it's not. not. I love yes. it. Like, And I yeah, we it. should so- be clear. It's not like when we say the, the definition of like fan service versus like it makes sense in the story and – and it's like making everybody happy. I think there's it's, a huge distinction yes. in that because people can get that mixed up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's not. No, it's fulfill. It's, it's wish a compliment. It's, <laughs> it is right. It is. I love Cassie and Cole. I love period pieces, and you just gave them both to mm-hmm. me. Thank you. <laughs> so, and also, I mean, let's be honest. Um, the last time that they like. Was the last time I was here. No, I'm just kidding. Right? Yeah, no, it, it, it was. That was but season right, two. Yeah. Cassie and Cole, have, they have a fucking rough road. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I think it's not only for the audience to be able to breathe a little bit and, and let – I mean, I don't know how much, I mean, particularly in the dancing scene, I don't know how much of it is dialogue and how much is just letting Amanda Schul and Aaron Stanford they're just, just like, Yeah, they're just like bickering. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's fucking fantastic. And I could watch another 30 minutes of it. But like, that, it, I think it's important because, I mean, not only to, you know, I freaking love them. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not like I was, but, but, but to just get to be with them. Mm-hmm. And remember, I mean, not only for the two characters, but also for the audience, like, this is why you love them, right? This is why you're rooting for this relationship and and the huge conflict uh, that is culminating at the end of this season is about them fighting for their son. But now that you um, think about what the ending is going to be, that, that that Cassie's choice on that balcony is about Cole. What are the stakes? About, yeah. For her. Right, that right. You you have to give us moments like this, mm-hmm. right? Like you have to give us them, like just seeing them in love and and loving each other the same way you get to see them, you know, be flirty, like you know, the banter in the car, being flirty, coming out of the elevator and after, right? Like you have to give us those moments because, right? Like yeah. that's the montage that we're gonna see from her perspective, and even <laughs> when you, she's like, on the balcony, <laughs> even if you like, <laughs> right? remove yourself from the. Like, thinking about the show overall and just think about this episode or even just, like, the the few episodes that are happening right now, it is a lot of really heavy stuff. This is a heavy episode. I mean, we remember it maybe for this as a standout moment for having a ball, that being a standout moment, and Jennifer and her fireworks and all that but this is this is a point in time in the story where you are in the it's gonna get worse before it gets better you're in the it's gonna get worse part of it right now yeah and so yeah we're like like, yeah yeah. (laughs) we're like in the the empire strike we are in the uh, about to be the third act of empire strikes back yeah (laughs) (laughs) that that having that like moments of brightness um is and that that's exactly what I'm like the the fanfic part of it was like seeing it just as as a perfect thing that you can imagine in your mind but also as a really really necessary thing at this point in time because it's like 
those little moments and like the the very important line in the scene where he's like nothing bad can come from this i know it's a bit later but like i feel like that's a very like yes it centers you for the stakes for the entire show but then just within this point in time i think it's really needed um this the jennifer stuff too and this this casserole scene like you need those moments of lightness where you remember that like you where you smile like involuntarily at the tv <laughs> yeah exactly like you're just sitting i'm just probably sitting there grinning mm-hmm. like an idiot like at the tv absolutely right and like you know often we said that it's fanfic but often what fanfic does is fill in all those exactly. spaces in between when you just want to see characters talking to each other and being with each other but Plots don't mm-hmm. give plots move so fast they don't give you the time for yeah, that. Yeah, right? where you're like, so show, th- there are places or shows or whatever where you just feel like you're holding your breath the whole time and you're not letting it go. But like you, those moments where you where you exhale are are very important, um, especially yeah. given where the show and like where the show where this episode ends. Like it's such a like Jennifer and the kid. It's so dark. <laughs> it's so dark. Yeah. But but for right now, for right now, it's we're going so to have. Heavy. The 12 Monkeys theme song in that kind of like, is it a harpsichord? Right? Like that, with the the montage. Um, We're going to have them being like, they're charming, like, amazing chemistry selves dressed in amazing Victorian costumes and it's just going to be awesome for like the next five minutes. Uh, My favorite thing is like Cassie trying to rob that guy the first the first guy and is like shit sorry. (laughs) I love it so much. I love it so much. And what's so funny is, remember the last time we talked, um, we were talking about Blood Washed Away, and I went to actually go look this up, um, how the the number one gift set for 12 Monkeys on Tumblr is um, the Blood Washed Away, like big, dramatic, uh, yell at e- car crash, yell at each other in oh, the yes, out yep. scene. The number two is the dancing scene. Aww. Like, for most gloved, gifable, like – tumblr like whatever so i was like you know like because those are the big romantic Mm -hmm. scenes like they know what they're doing and they are um very measured in how they give them to us but but then when they do we freak out over them which we're about to do so um (laughs) (laughs) so you have um kind of like the first scene when they're talking about and cassie like i love that cassie is like her mother interpreting her son's art and she gets it, and she's right, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, she's explaining, um, and it's all tied up She has all the pieces in yeah, her mind. <laughs> right, and I le- it takes us back to season one. She he When she talks about Edgar Allan Poe and the Mask of the Red Death, and Cole's like, yeah, uh, I grew up in the apocalypse. Like, <laughs> can you help, help a guy out? <laughs> I'm not as well-read, which is, like, just great remembering, like, where they're very different backgrounds. <laughs> um, like, Cole didn't go to school. Um, but it reminds us about the bookstore, right? Like the season one where Cassie lives, right? Yeah. Like her grandparents' bookstore and her grandmother gave her, you know, Mansfield Park, right? And like uh, that whole, I mean, I think it's interesting. What we, we're going to save Edgar Allan Poe for a rabbit hole at the end of the podcast. But um, in this scene, I just like how, again, like when I mentioned that, that like Poe was around, you know, they're in 1899. He was around, the, Ethan writes this in 1879. Um, and he, he was around even 30 years before before that but what like her son grew up in the 1870s they are from she's from 2000 or whatever her the coal is from 2004 like but at the same time 
art, these books, like that, yes, they joke about books and they, they, even when Jones and Olivia talk about books, it's like, that is something that is, that stays eternal and that connects them in time because it's just, it's like, it's timeless. Um, whether right. it's something like, very like these, the dark story <laughs> or like, you know, Poe or whether it's, um, whether it's the books that Jones is talking about, but these are people from different times, yet they're connected, they're family, and they're also connected by books, which I think is very beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it is, right? Like Sebastian probably taught Poe, um, to Ethan mm-hmm. and Ethan was reading that story. And then Cassie in like when she was a kid, what, like in the 80s? Uh, in early 90s, her grandfather was reading Edgar Allan Poe to her too, right? And that's what connects not only uh, those two mm-hmm. characters almost a hundred, like over a hundred years apart, but like also like it makes, I know it made me think of like the first time I read like the Telltale Heart yes. and you were just like, <laughs> you know, like as a kid and you're just like, you know, those stories make mm-hmm. such a, such an impression. Although I think it's interesting that like Edgar Allan Poe had so much to do with like his his beloved wife dying and death and like maybe grandpa really set Cassie up um, <laughs> to be obsessed with like losing the people you love. Right. Like, yeah. Um, so you have the um, poster for the ball and there's some great like social commentary mm-hmm. on, on what the rich enjoy. Um, Those lines are so good. I love, like I, when I rewatched it recently for the pod, I was like, Ooh, like this is well, re- it's like sharp. <laughs> Yes, absolutely, right? And especially, like, living in the world of, like, the 1%, yeah. right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, it reminds me of sort of the, like, subtle social commentary, like, back in season one with Project Spearhead. Mm-hmm. Um, like, some people are still going to be eating on table, white tablecloths in China, even if it's the apocalypse. Yeah, and the commentary, um, like, about the plague and, and who it affects and, and sick is not sick. Like, that, that it, oh, it's very well done. Yes, absolutely. Um, then you have... Cole is such a fucking dad. I mean, those two boys, like, right? And it makes you think of Ramsey and Cole, Aww, right? Probably, does, right, does. as boys. And he's just like, you're not doing it right. But, like, fine, here's some money and go get something to eat, right? Like, that – it's a character moment for Cole, right? And the right? way is- Cassie is watching him is, like, uh, my heart. <laughs> you're like, my boyfriend is such a dad. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, all right. So then that takes us to uh, the amazing – The best montage. <laughs> the best montage. Um, so we have, like – uh, what, should we take Cassie trying to become a scav first before we get to the Sure. <laughs> yeah, we have one skill that one person has and another skill that another person has. Yes. Um, it's so great. And it definitely gave me sort of those like season one feels where one person was good at bullshitting one person, right? Mm-hmm. But this goes to like, so you have, um, you have the, the shit and she does it wrong. So and, and, and Cole just trying to be like, I think we need to rethink your yeah. approach. Like, no, you can do this, right? Like, you can picture, like, I can think of all of the times that, like, <laughs> like, you're, like, with, like, a significant other where they're trying to, like, you're like, I suck at this. They're like, no, 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 like, right? you can do this. I also uh, love that he, t- like, his instructor, like, sh- her reaction to him saying smile more is just like every woman in the universe. <laughs> Where she's like, exactly. well, fine. Like, but like at that moment, because they need 
need something. But like just her face when he says that, she's like, she's like so grossed out. <laughs> I love and, it. But then, but then she doesn't. Yeah. And she totally she's flirts so with the old dude, right? And then like her little face when she's like, I did it. And he's like, you know, like, oh. s- s- like so proud. It's so great. And then we have the dancing scene. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is, I like that is beautiful. It's so beautiful. It, I remember when um Megan was on Megan Goes Wine was on the pod mm-hmm. and she talked about her favorite costumes in the whole series were these outfits in the dancing Aww. scene and she talked about sort of like how the, like just the the silhouettes, like the the cuts mm-hmm. of the costumes, the way they complement one another, and just the way the shot, like particularly that like closing shot, um, with the two of them, or just sort of the way it's framed, like it's just like it's beautiful to look at. It's just like look, like I'm a romantic. It's a romantic scene. I love it. Like I eat it up with a spoon, and it, and and the show doesn't. You know, it, we don't get a lot of those moments. Um, but like leading up to that, like obviously the layer of real world, like what's just amazing about it is obviously Amanda Schul was a professional <laughs> dancer, and so like there's just this added layer of like you know like this is somebody who really knows what they're doing. Oh my gosh, <laughs> um, yeah, her instructions feel so like <laughs> like they 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 feel obvious, but it's really fun to watch her be like like when she's like trying to explain to him like don't bounce and stuff. How do you walk? Do you, oh do you my stare? god, him bouncing is ridiculous. He looks like he's like holding a baby, you know, and getting like on their knee. Like, oh my she's god, it's so bad. Being, like, what? Like looking at him up and down without moving. I just love it so much. It's so good. Like, how do you walk? Do you stare at your feet or like pretend that you're standing with a glass of water? Now the water is like- everywhere. <laughs> it's so silly and like it's so it also feels like out of time because like yes they're in like the 1800s and they're preparing mm-hmm. for a ball but it just it feels so normal <laughs> which is right lovely. I mean that right the, it is like I mean that's what is so uh, you know that's the other layer that's so gr- great about it is because it looks like it's 1899 they're dressed like it's 1899 but the dialogue mm-hmm. is very much the way we all talk to each other now right so you have that juxtaposition like so yeah it's so um it's just really it's really fun to watch and i i feel like i notice a different um sarcastic comment from amanda shul every time it's delightful and Um, and cole is just like comically bad at it until the very end where he like twirls her and i'm just like okay are you just being bad at this so you can flirt or like (laughs) are you actually that bad at it like i don't i don't really know but it's really fun to watch it is and then you get you get the line that is like so beautiful Mm -hmm. nothing bad could come from this and it not only was I thought like um man if you think where where Cole's headspace was at in like the eighties heist episode um or nature mm-hmm. and nurture and the self loathing and thinking that his son is terrible because of him and instead like reorienting himself to be like no but this this in my life and you this is a good thing. You know, this is a good thing in my life. And, you know, I think 
a, a lot of Cole's redemption story is wrapped up in the impact that Cassie has on him, right? Like yeah. they impact each other. But if you think back to like season one, you know, the coal that goes back and saves Ramsey at the end of season one is a coal that was exposed to Cassie and her moral outlook and in her world, right? And so like she's wrapped up in all of that. But but it's also just beautiful in terms of now when you think back, when you think about the themes of the show and and finding hope in love and in human connection and in family and friends and you and you listen to that line you're like how could i ever think that this show would make their son the bad guy oh, no. <laughs> do you know what i mean like, and i totally did yeah. for a really long yeah. time but now you, now when you kind of see it like in the rearview mirror you're yeah. like of course they wouldn't do that they tell you, know? you because like, like in this episode they they tell you what is happening? Like they tell you that nothing bad could come from this, from their relationship, and at the same time, uh, in with Olivia and and Jones, Olivia is saying like, "This is how the witness thinks." Like I know, like they are telling you the story, and we just like don't know enough to know and to listen to what they're saying, which is just and even like within this episode, like with with Deacon suggesting earlier that like people don't change, and yet here, like this whole arc has led Cole to say so surely that nothing bad could come from them them being together and their love like it's it's such a like the show is saying what it is you know when they say like when when someone says like who they are that's like Mm -hmm. that's what they are like believe it and that's like this i feel like there's certain lines in this in this episode that are like really telling you that and you don't really like grasp it until you kind of watch the whole thing and like think back on it Right. And the people don't change. I mean, it just hit me. It's like, people don't change. Why are you letting Olivia out of the cage? Mm-hmm. You know, right? Like, ah, oh, yeah. right? Like, why are you trusting her? Yeah. She's been your enemy, like, for two, like, this whole time, mm-hmm. right? So, like, yeah, both people don't change. Some people can change. <laughs> like Deacon is going to like make choices, right? Or maybe that goodness was always inside of him, right? And it needed yeah. to be brought out. But then also people don't change, meaning like fucking Olivia. Like don't trust Olivia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like, this is where they say like, you know, if you're wondering, if if you're for even a second, you're wondering that maybe, maybe Jones and, and Deacon are right and, and Cole and Cassie are in the wrong here. But then, but then again, it tells you this is who you should believe. Like this is it's saying what it is like which is like all we have to do is just like listen to it right right i know um okay that takes us to the ball yay (laughs) ah so like all great costume dramas there's a big confrontation at a ball um not usually with guns and fireworks but definitely with (laughs) words um and so first of all like it's I, I guess before they walk in, like they pull up to the it is it, that palace is mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Um, it like you know it looks like something from like a BBC period drama. Um, you have like I just want to give a shout out to James Cole who had 
zero fucking game in the pilot. <laughs> when they were at, when they were pulling up to that party and he was basically like, you look like girls in dirty magazines. And like, oh, you know, you, you smell good, right? Like he had zero game. This James Cole, he fucking hired a horse-drawn carriage to pull up in style with Cassie. Like that is how you take a woman out on a date in 1899. Like, well done, sir. I'm like so proud of him. Uh, <laughs> So, but and you he go doesn't even eat anything the whole ball. <laughs> <laughs> There's no cheeseburgers in 1899. You're right. He doesn't uh, eat anything. I mean, he, the coal of old would definitely be walking around with a comically large turkey leg. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going for the chicken tandoori skewers, right? Like he is taking his lady in a carriage. He is dressed up and he is going to dance with her and like, well done. Like, I'm just really proud. I'm really proud of James Cole's like game in this episode. <laughs> um, but so we get inside the ball. It's like obviously filmed on location, uh, like huge Gorgeous, god. Yeah. What are those like 30 foot ceilings, right? The chandeliers, all the extras. Like it just, it looks so good. Um, and then you get, and I'm gonna say the actual minute mark because I don't want anyone to miss it. At the 20, 24 minutes and 53 seconds, go to there and pause it because there is Constance <laughs> from the painting in the 80s heist video. Um, I mean, the, yeah, in the 80s. In <laughs> the 80s heist episode. episode before. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, con- it's Constance. <laughs> it's the one, right? And, and Cassie in the 80s episode looked at that portrait and was like, woof, right? Like, ugh. And sees her and that's why her mouth drops and you see her go to turn to say something to Cole and then, like, they end up talking about something else. It's fucking Constance from the 80s episode. Right. Yeah. So, 24 minutes and 53 seconds, the Constance in the flesh from the portrait at the auction in the 80s episode is at that point. What an amazing catch. That's incredible. I need to go back and see this. I've seen this episode like four times minimum, at least, and I have not noticed that before. <laughs> I mean, I think it's her. I'm pretty sure. I mean, Cassie reacts to it. I mean, I'm, I believe like, you. It sounds like the exact thing they would do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I love the irony of <laughs> the mask is the iconic symbol of the show and of the witness. Now we have the supposed parents of the witness in masks looking for their son in a room full of people all wearing masks. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what a clusterfuck. (laughs) So You can't escape uh, destiny. Um, you know, it's like now they're looking like normally the, 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 the witness in the mask would stick out. And now it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, like if Ethan wanted anywhere to hide out um, and observe what was going on, you know, which he's doing, then uh, he picked a really good place to hide because <laughs> everyone's wearing a mask. <laughs> um, you know, I like I like that they show them kind of, um, you know, Cassie has moments of doubt, like, what if we can't convince him, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's very human. You know, you would get really nervous in that moment, like, shit, I'm about to come face to face and this is the moment. And like, what if it doesn't work, right? Alicia, tell us about the waltzes. Yes, yeah. So the wal- the there's three waltzes in this um in the scene, and they all have like 
very different emotions. And you can tell, you can tell, like, they, they use it. It's like diegetic music, but they definitely use it to kind of bring up the emotion of what's happening. Um, and I even have a question about if the last waltz is really supposed to be kind of in time, but, but we'll talk about that in a second. But the first two waltzes, um, when, uh, Cassie and Cole arrive and then also they're dancing, th- those two are both by, um, Johann Strauss, the second. So the younger, um, and they are perfectly chosen in time. They are from the 1860s, 1870s. Um, and they're even written for, uh, well, at least the first one. I'm not actually sure about the second one. Um, but they are written by, for a small string ensemble, which I really loved. I thought that the, the level of um, accuracy there was, was really enjoyable. It's, it's fun when, when you can actually like, I, I love classical music, huge classical music fan. And so it's, it's fun to see something where, um, I, I actually went and listened to that piece. Um, they're all on YouTube. And so <laughs> it was fun to see that it was actually played on the show by what it was meant to be played by. Um, so yeah, so the first two waltzes, the first one is called Vienna Blood or Wiener Blut. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce German, but anyway, um, it's Vienna Blood, um, and, uh, Ertz Opus 354 and it's celebrating a wedding. So it's very happy. And then the second one, again, I'm going to butcher this. Um, it translates to artist life, but it's like, it's con- Leben. Do you guys speak German? <laughs> um, we do not. I, yeah. We do not. But our German listeners have been very forgiving. Okay, that's of good. Our mangling of, <laughs> it's of just German. brutal. Yeah. I feel bad. Yeah. Um, but that one. So Opus three sixteen. Those. If you want to YouTube these gorgeous waltzes, they're very like minimalist. Um, both of them because they are are for small ensembles, but they're part of um, operettas. And so, yeah, the second one was also supposed to be, it's supposed to be really happy. It's supposed to pick up, um, the spirits of, of Vienna after, um, after they like terribly lost, um, in the, uh, in the Austro-Prussian War. Um, it was like some, it was actually oddly a battle that took place in present day Czech Republic. So, you know, we're in pro, anyway, it's a whole thing. <laughs> All these connections that you can make there, they're supposed to be in London, but they're where they're filming and where that battle took place and what waltz they're playing. Circles and circles. But anyway, so those two, <laughs> those two are, um, they're, they're happy waltzes. And the third one, so I cannot, because I, I do, I know the other two pieces, but I cannot, um, confirm fully. It does sound like that this is what it is to me. And this is what, um, a couple of people have said online. So I, I feel like it, the, the orchestration is maybe different if it's, if it is the same piece, but, um, the last piece, um, is, believed to be Valstriest or Sad Waltz, the one where, um, we're not there yet, but the one where, um, Cole and, uh, Jones are dancing. So the one that's like mm. a very serious piece and that builds and builds until Jennifer sets off the fireworks. Um, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard to tell because it's, it's, they've, they've quietened it a lot. And so, um, so I feel like I found a couple of sources that did say that. And then I listened to the piece and I was like, I think that's it potentially. But the interesting thing is um, that if it is that piece, then that piece is actually by Sibelius from 1903. Um, so it's actually a little bit out of time for um, for that time. And it features enough that, like, if if that is the piece that it is, I honestly don't think it's pro- it's a mistake. It might be. Who knows? Maybe this is a question for for them later. But um, but it's interesting because when Cassie and Cole are dancing and also looking for Ethan and all of that, like they're very much within that time and they're very much in the ball. And like the ball, the music of the ball is very much supposed to be 
like in that location, the the didactic music, it's supposed to be in that location. You're just listening in on the whole setting. And when Cole and Jones are dancing, I feel like, first of all, future crew has arrived. Like, the <laughs> sorry for calling them that. <laughs> oh, God. But anyway. <laughs> oh, please forget I said that. No. What, what should we call them? Splinter, Cell, whatever we want to call them that's not that. Um, they have a- team, team Jones. Team Jones. Team there Jones. you go. <laughs> anyway. So Team Jones has arrived. And, and immediately you're, I think, like- taken out of the ball setting <laughs> and you are in back in the story. And I feel yeah. like if that is, that is the, first of all, if they wanted that for dramatic effect, because that is a very dramatic waltz. <laughs> and second mm-hmm. of all, if they, if they really did want to go back to, or if they're using this as inspiration and it is part of the soundtrack, for example, like I feel like you kind of switch back into soundtrack mode um, after, after the whole, like, after Cole and Jones start talking, it kind of gets back into the show and, and you, you switch into that. And the first two really, like, let us live in the ball, um, which I thought was a, was a fun thing. Again, maybe, maybe it's a goof. Maybe it's a soundtrack thing that they, that they made a choice on. Or, or it's, a, or a headcanon. I think Ethan maybe handed them the sheet music and was like, here, play this. possibly, yeah. While I watch my dad yes. uh, and dance it's only, with. Like, I think the reason I think it's not a goof and like the reason I think that was actually the choice is because first of all, emotionally they are, they do start off with like the two happy waltzes that are celebrating and then the one that is specifically called sad waltz and it has dramatic moments in it. And also because it's close enough in time that like 1903 is not that far from, like it, it is a very good and possible headcanon to believe that, you know, like it's it's possible. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Um, Ethan was like, here, play, play it again. Play this right? one. This is my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. But I will say the first two, that like if you if you want to go and and listen to like peak um kind of Austrian waltzes, though those are those are ones that you should listen to. They're very they're very minimalist, and you'll really get the idea of of why um like uh, of of the structure or the rhythm of a waltz in different ways, like how how it can still have different emotions even though it's in threes and it's the same kind of rhythm and same you know we know it as a dance but but waltzes as music are very varied so anyway that's my uh mini aside um and so fun this is why (laughs) this is why you are our real life jones because you have a phd in the sciences (laughs) and love classical music you are a real life jones i feel like i'm just making myself sound like more and more of a nerd so you know Honey, this is a this is a nerd. There you podcast. go. You guys appreciate it, but but also this music is really really beautiful and yeah. Oh, I <laughs> I'm love not embarrassed it. to love it because it is very pretty. No, it is. Okay, so that takes us to um, what I like about this is that like there's a piece to this that Cole figures out, right? Mm-hmm. Like Cassie got them there, but but in interpreting like what their son meant. Um, it makes sense that Cole is the one that's like, well, maybe it's not about the rich people, right? Like, look at the people who aren't wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how they find Sebastian. And I love the continuity that the last time Cole and Cassie were with Sebastian, Ka- Cole shot him <laughs> in the leg, which is why he's now limping. Yes, um, yep. You know, which is crazy because that happened in the 1950s and now he's back in 1899 limping, right? Like, ah, ah, it makes your brain hurt. But, um, you know, so you think that finally, right, like 
talk about like the masks and the things like the person that they're both of them, both all three of them are there to see is hiding from them behind a mask and they are left with each other. Um, the three people who in the room right now love Ethan and have in different ways, um, at least his well-being, um, all in common, right? And then you have Deacon in a fucking tricorn hat. <laughs> like, I am just like fire, you know, like the fire Elmo gif. Like, who would have thought that the Scav King would be like yeah. dressed up in like 1800s version of 1700s fashion, he's right? He's so like, mad, uh, but he's so fancy. <laughs> it amuses me so much. <laughs> Just like the combination of those two things. <laughs> I think that's our cold open. He's so mad, but he's so fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the same can be said for Jones too. <laughs> oh my god! I will like and okay. So she wore contacts for this shit. <laughs> 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 it's just. So funny. <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna need a minute. She wore contacts for this shit. She did. Oh my god! Jones looks so. I mean, okay, Hannah looks like, uh, let's just take of it all times. I'm just going to flail about all of their costumes, right? Like, like Deacon looks like he is an extra from Le Mis. <laughs> you know, like, it, which is like, you know, they're all, it's a costume ball, right? So like, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a different, like, but, oh, it's so great. Like, he looks like he could almost be like Javert in Le Mis. And he's like, he's that pissed. Yeah. And he's hunting people down, The other right? thing, like, you have to imagine is like, they're all so mad and like imagine them getting dressed like in a huff like they're so mad i gotta put on these 17 pieces of clothes before i can go shoot my ex-friends like, just like it's all so like silly but like so right serious. right joe's is like dude like hannah help, help me lace up this fucking corset right like i'm used to wearing a trench coat like oh, oh my gosh but hannah looks so pretty right uh, like yes she's been like like, you know, post-apocalypse, like, like, murder baby. And now she's, like, in this, like, right? Like, mm -hmm. she, like, it's wearing, like, ah, oh, it just looks so and pretty. And the family Jones, Jones is all there. Like, everybody. <laughs> oh, my God. You're oh. right. Oh, my God. You're They're right. Ethan's there, too. The little shits. <laughs> Oh my god! It's the only time that they're all together other than in the House of Cedar and Pine in the season three finale. Holy shit, oh no. you're right. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> oh god. Ethan's uh, Ethan is watching Ethan is watching his entire like And he oh knows, my god. and Ethan knows. Probably. Well, does he I know? No. Does he know about Hannah, you think? I don't know when he or goes Jones. to see. He knows about Jones. That's no, but he he's only met Jones. He has he doesn't know like. Well, he went to go see Jones, before, but that was also yeah. like she's the inventor of yeah. time travel, so it doesn't I don't think necessarily he knows her mean. As, yeah, maybe. Oh my! But he's a oh primary. Yeah, but Jennifer didn't know. Oh, true, true. Uh, so you have the great you have the great grandson wearing a mask, watching his mother, father grandmother and great-grandmother that is crazy oh my god i'm so glad that you caught that um, uh, this is like, um I, I, she's his grandmother 
<laughs> I know. I should. Yeah. Um, but Jones, Jones, um, Barbara Sakawa looks magnificent. Oh, yes. That's the only word that I could like, like what they did with her hair and like the like fur trim and the, I mean, it's just like, oh, magnificent. All right, so let's take um, they you know wisely pair up Jones and Deacon with the two individuals that are you know perhaps the greatest source of their emotional pain <laughs> from the betrayal. So let's take Cassie and Deacon first. Thoughts on this really painful conversation? <laughs> well, his is not only emotional pain. <laughs> she literally shot him. Right? <laughs> so there's that. Um, He's I, all healed. It's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I love... I don't think it's, like, too spot on in this episode. Like, even though, obviously, the whole thing harkens back to it and has been for the last couple, like, I don't think it's too on the nose for them to just directly compare this to Ramsey and call everybody out for how mm-hmm. like hey we've all been against him and now you guys are trying to pull this same crap are you serious like we've been here before but the other thing between everyone having this conversation especially in a in the Cassie and Deacon situation nobody is in a position to either offer nor accept an apology <laughs> they're just like you're just not there, like location-wise, mentally, whatever. Like, literally, you're you're not in apology corner. I don't know. Like, you're, you're about a, to yeah, this fight. Like, it's a, just not gonna work. There's the a location. Nice, yeah, like like yeah. Han- Hannah is so is to borrow the phrase from Alicia. Hannah is so fancy, and she's holding a knife to Cassie's throat at a ball. Right, like that. This is when it it just shifted from BBC back to the sci fight channel yeah <laughs> <laughs> right like um yeah i mean the other thing she's that got I- like that crocodile dundee knife on her ass yeah. too it's not even like it's not like, it's a, not like a butter knife, knife yeah. from the thing you know i was well, i looked at that and i was like how does nobody see that she's just like <laughs> out there in the open neck splayed like ready to cut that bitch like it's a lot i know i mean the one thing i thought though and and maybe i'm reading too much into this but like when Deacon says, um, basically, like, the last person who, referring to Ramsey, tried to save their son, and then his brother put a bullet in his back, like, this never ends well. Um, I guess there was a part of me a little bit that, like, you know, he, as pissed as he is at Cassie, and as betrayed, and he still cares about her, right? And so, like... The last person who paired up with Cole trying to save a kid died and Cole shot them. So, like, a part of me wonders if a little bit is also, like, there's betrayal, but there's also, like, concern, right? Like, because it's really easy to be, like, mad at someone when they're not there. And now all of a sudden he, after chasing her everywhere, is, like, face to face and actually able to have a conversation with her. And that's when, you know – feelings come back up right well, like he wants her on their side yeah. yeah exactly like he's mad she can't see it from their point like do you not see this happening it's happening and it's like right in front of you right just like yeah. they want to change the witness's mind now he wants to change cassie's mind you see how we just go in these loops <laughs> yeah that 
won't work. And then you're like, well, I'll try it, I guess. <laughs> Pain is <And>, high. <laughs> and then he has, and then he has that killer line, ap- apologies will be, shall be issued only in blood. And you're like, oh, fuck. It's so dramatic. He's such a dramatic hoe. I'm like, he dude, really you're, you're wearing a tricorn hat. <laughs> so great. Um, Okay. That takes us to the, the really- other betrayal. Uh, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> fuck, this is real. This, there's, okay. This is the, there's so much going on in this conversation with Jones and Cole. And let's just, like, let's just, let's save the emotional um, piece of it that, like, makes my heart hurt. Um, let's save that for a second. And first, you just have sort of this, um, I, I guess, like, we can kind of unpack their points of view in this debate mm-hmm. they're having. Because Jones, from Jones's perspective, you know, yes, like, when, when Cole is like, I'm not doing anything different than what you did. Like, you did everything to save your child. I am now doing the same. Like, you would have done exactly the same thing in Cassie in my position. And Jones's point, like, Let's save the emotional, like, why couldn't you have told me the truth? Jones's point is, I was trying to save Hannah, who was a child whose future was robbed from her by your son. You're trying to save the person who did that. Like, took your future, took Hannah's future, and killed 7 billion people. And and so they're having this kind of, like, like Cole has a point, right? Like, But she also has a point, yeah, but she, that it's like, not the same. Yeah, she also has a point, which is fascinating because that's the debate we used to have about Ramsey versus Jones, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like, yep. right? When when Ramsey didn't want to reset things and save everyone because it would erase his son, and it was like, okay, but you're on the side of 7 billion people dying. And now Cole is in that exact same position. So I love how they kind of like flesh that out and they both have a point and Cole is right. Like if there's the only, like the reason why we're in this whole story is because Katarina Jones invented time travel to save Hannah, right? Like, I mean, putting aside the whole gin yeah. thing, right? But it's like, a very far- good twist on like one versus the many, but like they, like it's a dilemma, and you, but you know, like you know why they're doing it, and neither of them is right, and it, like you know what I mean? Like it's kind of like a, a weird funhouse mirror one versus the many dilemma. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And Cole's right. Like, you know that Jones would have fucking burned it down to save Hannah. But it's just like you were saying a little bit earlier, too, though, with Jones and that, you know, that side that she has. I mean, once she makes up her mind, Jones is going to do Jones. Mm -hmm. And if this Mm -hmm. were her on the other side of it, she would be full on mad ass scientist, like Mm -hmm. doing the same thing he was doing. Like you said, Cece, she would burn it down. Yeah, absolutely. For Hannah. Right. I mean, and so she, Jones hasn't been put in the position of her personal yeah. one aligns with the many. Mm-hmm. She has not been put until she gets put at the end of the show in the position of saving Cole. Fuck whatever that does to time, maybe. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like, right? Yeah. So right now she has had the luxury of her one aligning with the many and Cole and Ramsey before him have not. 
And so it's like a great, it's just such a great twist. Yeah. And like when also- you look at it, when, sorry, when you look at it from a distance and you're like, oh, Cole started off as like the, the ultra like science, scientist, logical, like did whatever it took, whatever to, to save everybody to the end, saving, deciding to save Cole. But no, that was always Jones. It, Jones was always going to be the person that would do whatever it took to also save Hannah. And no matter what, like, you know, if she was like what, what you said, Beep, like if she was in Cole's position, she would do the thing that Cole is doing. <laughs> ah, I have no doubt. Right? Yeah. And we know that because she, at the end of this series, is not That's going to, yeah. she's not going to let Cole be erased. Right? And I mean, you know, the, the beautiful thing about all of that is the person who will inspire her to save Cole is the one they're arguing about right now. Yeah, but at least this conversation is like the most honest one that's been had in a hot minute because she Mm -hmm. is like, the issue here is not who wants to kill and who doesn't. The issue is that nobody trusted each other. Well, yeah. So yeah, that brings us to the personal. And the line, I have known in my life two great agonies, the pain of losing a child and the pain of being betrayed by one. Okay, before we go very serious, also her and Deacon just living together is making each other just like very dramaticos, just saying. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> yes, they're feeding off of each other for sure. <laughs> Listen, they are really fucking mad and they got dressed up for this party. And so they are going to be, I, you know, like they've been holding this in ever since, like, right? Like they're just going to let them have it. And they probably practice those lines in their head. Right. Oh, can you, know? you just see them sitting around it? night drinking and like just (laughs) like stewing in all of it you know just like in the in the betrayal of it all and oh yeah he throws a bottle at the wall and then she's like why would you do that in my room but then she throws the glass and it's it's a whole thing (laughs) somebody needs to write that yeah beep go write that that. that. i'm a little busy at the moment (laughs) but okay sorry back back to the the like i think this is this is very big it's a big move for jones to be this vulnerable. She's called, I mean, that the thing is, is that, like, if you're Cole, you just heard, like, she's, right, she's unbelievably vulnerable, but if you're Cole, you just heard two conflicting things at once. Jones just called you her son. Like, this is the, this is the, like, the man who has been orphan since he was, like, how old was he supposed to be in Paradox? Like, four years old? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and this woman that he has looked up to, like, has been his partner, has just called him her son. But at the same time, is articulating to him the depth of how she, how he hurt her by not telling her the truth, which is the one thing in all of this that he could control, right? Like, yes. Right. And he, and that was the choice he made to not trust her. And like the nub of it, of what really like has upset Jones so much is that he didn't trust her and he didn't tell her the truth. Like they're supposed to be partners in this, right? Like from the beginning to the end, from how this show started to him putting his hand over her hand, like I am with you, like until the end, like that is who betrayed her. And so it's like this tragic moment of Jones is basically telling Cole, like, I love you and you're my son, but you did this horrible thing that hurt me. It's so much. And then I think of the line when she dies, 
when he tells her, I had two mothers, right? Like Jones is telling him in this moment, I had two children and we're going to get the like, finally, like the response back moments before she dies of Cole saying, I had two mothers. It's like the bookend to this conversation. One said when they are miles apart and the other said like, when they have this like beautiful moment together right before she dies. And it's just like makes me want to like throw stuff. The writing is so good. <laughs> I just, I'm like, so I'm so like ups- upset in a good way, but like that imagine it from Cole's point of view too, that yes, she just called, she just called herself essentially his mother. But at the same time, imagine how frustrating and just cosmically unfair it must be to him because she is saying that her first great agony was the pain of losing a child and he has seen her go through it but at Mm -hmm. the same time her child is right there holding his (laughs) holding Cassie hostage like first of all but also just like trying like she's saying that and it feels so unfair in that moment because like I almost feel like he should be saying but you got her back like why won't you let me if you think I'm your son and like you lost your child and there she is right there yeah you want to right now right and you want to kill mine yeah like it it feels so unfair that she's like telling him that she loves him and at the same time saying but I don't think you should get what I got what you helped me get back right it's also and i I don't think she intended this at all i'm not saying this is like emotional manipulation but what a fucking power move right no 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 i absolutely you're a child you're my child but like she literally insinuated right then too like you are a child like you cannot make these decisions well, so, I mean, I, I saw it more like she's saying this and it, it, like, again, I don't think she means it to come across that way, but like from her, from his point of view, I feel like it can come across in it with a little bit of a cruel streak because Hannah's right yeah. there. Even in though in a we have massive seen her. power dynamic. Yes, exactly. And like, he never really gets to express like, well, how dare like <laughs> he never gets to express that that first or you know because they're then then jennifer and the fireworks but like but just just trying to like process that would just be would just mess up mess your mind because like she's saying two very very opposite things like you said uh cc yeah cole's having a really um like the night started out better when he showed up in a carriage and drawn horses and it's really gone down the shitter right now. Like, I mean, man, like he's looking for his son. His like real grandmother slash adopted mother is like, just like major guilt tripping him and power playing. He's got a gun. Like, it's just, man, James Cole is not having a good day. Not a good day. (laughs) All right. That's it though. He looks really good. Oh, they look so good. I love them in fancy clothes. Okay. That takes us to (laughs) the, uh, here's the thing. What they play with in throughout the whole episode are masks. So the moment we've been waiting for is for the figure in the red mask, like as we'll get to at the end of the pod, the Edgar Allan Poe story, to show up at the ball. All eyes are on the figure in the red plague mask, and everyone, including the audience, thinks it's Ethan. But it's Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. It was a little bit hard to think that when he was revealed. And I know, okay, I get it. But she's just not tall enough. <laughs> like, the witness, like, has to be a presence. Oh, also, yeah, no, we've actually seen the witness, like, 80 times, in theory. 
she, she's just a little. It's not working. <laughs> she's a little. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, the reveal, but then you look and you're like, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> she's, she's too small. <laughs> yeah. But then I love, like the, like, the most classic Jennifer thing is to say what you're doing out loud while you're doing it right oh, sure. so like so like in guardians where she's like this is my distraction dance but then this <laughs> one is i take my mask up this is the part where you run right like it's so um and well, then she lives in a movie i mean she's I know. literally directing her own life <laughs> so i mean then like we've uh, uh, she just like releases fireworks in the middle of this like i'm like yeah that was definitely cgi because they're in like a historic <laughs> like, also a really really good choice too did you notice they like hold the music and it's like almost like a heartbeat like there's like a there's a beat on the music and the waltz stops when they're like all looking at her and then mm-hmm. when she unmasks herself and the fireworks go off the waltz comes back really loudly <laughs> it's like out of a like yeah it feels like it's out of a movie <laughs> yeah it's so great um you know Ethan is watching all of this <laughs> like I wouldn't want to, like, fucking deal with these people either. Um, (laughs) People that I don't know are my family, but that are my family are a hot mess. Uh, Are hot. They are a hot fucking mess in this episode. (laughs) Then you have, oh, this is, it hurts my heart when uh, Jones slaps Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it is, like, that is not fun to watch. But I love how Jennifer is, like... Still in a in a movie or TV show with Vihaves of making you talk. Like I'm gonna make fun of the German lady who's threatening to lock me up by like, yeah, man, I've seen that TV show. Like I've seen that movie. Um why don't we just take the Jennifer part through her being locked up mm-hmm. and then we'll return to sort of the closing out the Sebastian part of the episode. Um I'm sad because Jennifer has been, like, slapped before, too. I'm just like, come on, you guys. Everybody needs to stop stop Yeah, Cassie slapped Jennifer. Yeah. Oh, man. Everyone is just, uh, yeah. (laughs) So that takes us really quickly. Let's close the loop on 2046 and Deacon dragging. So sad. The man who a few episodes ago said, no one's going to lock you up. And it's Deacon dragging Jennifer as she begs him. Not to. Tell me how you guys feel about that. Feel about what now? Deacon Lockheed. No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> did it didn't happen. Meets head cannon is it didn't happen. Does not compute. That was a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> oh the my god. Of her and the lighting and everything. God, it's like and the like the parallel with like Olivia. Oh. Well, there's so much going on, right? Like, I feel like um, Todd Stashwick's physical performance in this episode, like Deacon, like he's stalking, right? In so much of it. But this is like, I'm probably totally reading too much into it, right? But you have this scene that sets up this like horror of the two friends He knows what her biggest fear is that she said out loud to him is that all of this is going to lead to her being locked up again. And he's the one that promised her that it wasn't going to happen. And the way that he like physically does it is almost like watching someone be like, 
I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And like making themselves do it. And it's so like dramatic, right? And and, and, like part of that I'm sure is like, you know, Jennifer fucked them over, right? Mm -hmm. Like he now knows for sure that she was – I mean like they had them, right? He had Cassie right there. Jones had Cole right there. And Jennifer fucked it all up on top of like, you know, stealing, like using the time machine before, right? So he's understandably – from his perspective, pissed at her. But like, there's just something in the way that that scene plays out that I feel like you're watching as upset as Deacon is. It's something he is making himself do. Does that make sense? Like, like watching him do it and the way that he's like so dramatic, right? And close the doors behind him. Like, this is just a like amazing Deacon drama (laughs) episode. (laughs) But normally, and like normally those kinds of scenes where somebody is, perpetrating violence essentially against somebody else and yet we are all like we are supposed to feel for the perpetrator as well like those scenes normally don't work for me yeah um in this one i think they do they have done a lot of work to show why deacon is where he's at I mean, I will say that, granted, I'm still really pissed. <laughs> and I'm like, how dare you? Because she told you and, and this, this is what you're doing. Um, and which is why mostly most of the times those kind of scenes don't work for me. But I, I feel like with Deacon, it's like really after a certain point, it's like really, really hard to hate him. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think it really helps knowing that Jennifer doesn't hate him. You know, like, I think she understands, like, she, this is the worst and the lowest point that, that she, she's at in, in the last episode, really, actually, because she's always, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of struggles in her life. But, like, I think she doesn't blame him. And that is clear. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, he's gonna, I mean, despite this, um, like, she betrayed him. He's betraying a promise to her now, right? Yeah. He promised no one's going to lock you up, and now he's the one doing it. But by the next episode, he's going to reconsider that, mm-hmm. and then she's going to wink at him as she leaves. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that that happens so quickly after this shows yeah. you that, like, this this is a lot of, like, passion and anger in the moment, mm-hmm. and, and it is a rift, but there isn't something that is, like – irrevocably like fractured because of it does that make sense yeah because you know like i think those scenes work well when the person who has like in in that moment has appears to have less power but you know that's not necessarily the case and that they're also not blaming the other person because like because the 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 story has explained why this is happening like I, i think I think there's a very fine line that you have to walk with those scenes, and sometimes it works really well, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and yeah, like, like I mean? I'm, yeah, normally as a woman watching a man dragging a woman to a cage and locking her up, I'm not like usually like a huge fan of those scenes. <laughs> this one, this one doesn't bother me at all. Right, exactly. And I, so and I feel, I mean, like, and I feel for both of them, and, and Jennifer is begging him, he cannot engage. He cannot talk to her. He does, he's not looking at her because he just, it's just something he has to get through and do. And that tells you that it's fucking ripping him up inside. And you, you know, know what I mean? that the power dynamic isn't heavily skewed in his side. Like really in the story, she has the power. You know what I mean? Like, so I think that also really 
like helps the like that that he's like it's clear that he's making a mistake. <laughs> right. And I it's mean, clear very quickly. Yeah, well, which because Oh my god, fucking Olivia walks in, like the cat that ate the canary, <laughs> bringing her charcoal, doing her bullshit, shh, you know, like she did in se- like season one, right? Mm-hmm. And you s- and and being like, okay, like, you know, to pass the time, like, sorry, I can't stay, but I'm not the one in the fucking cage anymore. And you just, like, you just want to throw something at the TV because it's just all wrong. That Jennifer's the one locked up and Olivia's the one with free reign throughout the facility. Like, not only the first time you watched it, but like, especially, like, nothing should have been more of a signal to us that shit was about to go sideways with Olivia (laughs) than that image of her walking away and Jennifer's the one that's locked up. I so. think, and coming back to like the the de- the deacon and Jennifer, and then Olivia and Jennifer, I think that contrast also really like makes makes it very obvious of like who's the who's the bad guy in all of this. Like there were three people that we just saw, and like the bad guy is clearly Olivia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think like the the way that they made it so that you don't you never really like question that like it, the bad guy's Olivia, Jennifer is in the most right. <laughs> right now <laughs> yeah, do you know what yeah, I mean like that yeah. scale that they set up for you to like really be clear um morally where where things are <laughs> right I mean and so you have like I mean we'll get to the big Ethan reveal but like it's fascinating mm-hmm. now that we know it's really Olivia that <laughs> you know like like the very clever image with the footsteps and is it somebody walking away or somebody walking like somebody walking to the middle of the courtyard or somebody walking off the page right and it's so (laughs) clever but but you have uh, juxtaposed you have Ethan taking the mask off right with like the big as the music sounds sinister and he sounds sinister and you're like fuck he's the witness right (laughs) and and then you've got Olivia not wearing a mask appearing to be the ally, the one who's cooperating with Jones and Deacon, and she's the one who really is. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, genius. Um, okay, there is no logic us- in the world that can make me get on board with letting Olivia out of a cage. Right? Yeah. It's so obvious wrong. Just, I honestly looked and I laughed because I'm like, is that just the only place they have to lock someone up and, like, now they need to lock Jennifer up more than Olivia? So they're like, well, we'll just make a swap or where do we <laughs> well, land here right well, now? Because I don't see why you can't just lock them both up. Like <laughs> this doesn't seem like the right move. I did not. I'll be. I'll be honest with you guys. I totally. Um, I did not suspect Olivia was the witness or thought that she wasn't helping, even if maybe like I really didn't. So looking back on it now, I'm like, man, like <laughs> that was like the biggest clue that everything was wrong, right? But like the first time I was watching it, I was like, oh, are they gonna do like a redemption arc for Olivia? Like no, she gonna end no up? Way. I, I did, I did. Based so. on the pre- even without having seen it, based on the previous comments, um, like knowing that you know Ramsey took her in there like on purpose, and then Jennifer's comments about like she's never not exactly where she wants to be, like no way, yeah, no, I didn't. I I did not know what was going to happen with her, but even then I was like, this is a really bad idea, guys. And to me, it felt like it was 
uber emotional, you know, because it's yeah. like, okay, now we're just picking sides with everybody because like, oh, we hate them now. That means we're fine with you. Like, it just went all over the place for me. I, I don't know. I bought it. I, they gave her a, like, sob story, backstory. They showed you why she – like, it, it all, all – everything that they built into what is what we will find out, her, like, villain origin story, at this point in the story, I, like, I don't know. I, I did – I had no idea that she was the witness, for sure. So Well, no, I'm I not talking it. about being the witness. I'm literally just talking about Jones deciding she should be out of a cage – I, well, especially because it's like no juxtaposed way. with Jennifer being in now, yeah. in locked up. So it's like, yeah, you you do get the impression that something went very wrong. Like that everything's is all topsy turvy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. That's not good. Yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, um, the way that they set up Ethan at the end of this episode is really fucking sinister. Yeah. So, Ooh, so I don't before know. Before we before we go there, I the one thing that I really like about I know it's like a very dramatic jail <laughs> because like previously they used to just like lock people up in rooms, but what I like about this particular um like uh, fence jail is that when they do close-ups of them like even before and when they do it like now with Jennifer being inside like in a close-up, you can't tell who is behind the fence. Like, you can't tell who is behind the, in, in the jail. Which I really like, like, like watch some close-ups that they do with conversations with Jones and Olivia, um, and then with Jennifer being in here, like until they zoom out, of course, like that when they're, when the two people are like close to each other and there's like a close-up shot of them, like you can't tell who's inside and it like messes with you because they do switch it up. Mm. Yeah. And it's better true. than using a door. Is what I mean to say in summary. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, physical like jail bars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. Especially since they're flipping, you know, Mm -hmm. the beginning of the season, it was Jennifer coming to talk to Olivia in that jail. Yeah. So, yeah. And the shot looks the same, just flipped. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, All right. That takes us to uh, the big confrontation with Sebastian. Um, I think it's key that – Sebastian is able to glean from Cassie's argument with Deacon that there is a divide among them. And so he can take, like, I think it's key that he understands from that conversation that Cassie and Cole have Ethan's well-being um, at heart. And so I think that's what ultimately, like, once he figures out that Ethan knew what was going to happen in this moment, when he figures out sort of the riddle of two pence for a popper, um, that combined with realizing that Cassie and Cole are not on the same side as Deacon and Jones is kind of like what pushes him to give them the information about Ethan's address um, in the hopes of tracking him down. Um, but he also tells them some um, – like in like he didn't want this future he despised it your son is kind um that is all like really something that Cassie and Cole really needed to hear and and he's he was Ethan's like Ethan had four guardians but his true guardian was Sebastian so mm-hmm. this is someone who knew him from a boy this is someone who can speak to his nature um and you know he's not like he never tried to shoot like he never tried to shoot them in in nurture right he was like putting his hands up right this is someone that like i think they can tell has athens like best interests at heart but then it's interesting cuz then like 
we learn about Athan's like childhood and what the person who raised him thought about him since he was the time since he was a boy, right? Because we've only had limited access to Athan as a boy. So the fact that he's like, no, like in his nature, he is a kind person. But then the next episode is going to be about the experiences that push him over the line to almost embracing becoming the witness, which I guess you could categorize as the nurture, right? It's Eliza's death. It's his interactions with his father and mother, even though they didn't know it like at the time. So, you know, they've been playing with that nature nurture all season. And so I think it's interesting, like they set it up that way with him introducing Ethan as a boy and now they're setting it up, um, introducing him as a man. Um, But what a gift that Sebastian gives as yeah. he knows that he's the person that raised their son, like what a, it's such a gift that he gives Cassie and Cole, um, yeah. in like both in their resolve that they are doing the right thing, like you said, and also just like being Ethan's parents and never getting to raise him, like right. And and they're both be- in some ways they are both betraying their causes because they all love Ethan. Right? Like, yeah. so Cassie and Cole do not want him to become the witness. Sebastian wants him to become what he describes as the benevolent witness. Like, imagine somebody who was good, who had all of that power, right? And he tried to take him back to Titan, right? He's like, it's inevitable. He's going, like, they don't agree on who Ethan is when it comes to this religion. But Cassie and Cole are betraying their mission to, in some ways, I know that like they're hoping they can turn him and that will ultimately prevent things. But Sebastian is helping the people who are trying to to stop the Red Forest. And it all comes down to because Ethan is all of their one, right? So like they're able to find that commonality. And so you watch him – um like he recognizes like Katarina Jones, like, wow, I've, I've heard about you, man. Um, but then he chooses, like it, it clicks and he remembers from the word of the witness and he makes an active choice to sacrifice himself and, and be the distraction to let Cassie and Cole get away and find Ethan. Um, and it's just sort of like, God, that man's whole life was in one form or another, like a sacrifice. About, yeah. About yeah. Ethan. Yeah. So, uh, so that, oh, Sebastian. (laughs) So that brings us just to the final reveal that is, you know, man, like we, this is almost three seasons in the making. Like we think this is the first time we're going to see the adult witness. Witness. (laughs) Right. And they set it up. They set it up that his home, when Cassie and Cole walk into his like townhouse, um, it's like a mausoleum, the way w- that almost echoes the way that museum, mo- like shrine at Titan in the se- in the season premiere when Cassie walked around it, right? Objects on display, mm-hmm. so it like echoes that. Um, and you have this really sinister Cole taking the sheet off, and it's a wi- you know it's a plague mask. And you you know when you first saw it, you're like, oh my god, he's got the fucking witness mask in the middle of his house. <laughs> like that's not a good sign. I definitely uh, thought that. Yep. Right. Right. But it turns out that it's the it's the mask worn by the woman that he loved and lost, who is inextricably tied towards pushing mm-hmm. him toward that choice. Right. But like. Again, it's a mask that we think is one thing, and it's not. Um, and then, and then, like, 
Ah, and then James Callis takes his mask off, right? Or he puts the pennies over Sebastian's eyes to like mm. close the the symbolism of what he had written on the word of the witness, and it's James Callis who. Man, his, I don't think his voice is normally that deep. Right. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think for one of the most, like, most weighted, like, we were waiting for three seasons. Like you just said, like, it, this was, this was really, like, a very, very important point. And, like, they did not disappoint with both the casting and the reveal. And, like, then you, like, you just know, like, shit's about to go down because it's, mm-hmm. like, the, like, it's, like, this huge casting. First of yeah. all, and like, and then also it's, it's very like, very sinister and very like he, it seems very possible. And just like, like I thought when he showed up, um, like when James Callis showed up, first of all, I thought, again, since I didn't know kind of what was going to happen or like hadn't really been spoiled on anything, I assumed that he was going to be around, like that it was like a big casting. And then like, as I kind of felt like, oh, maybe he's going to be a guest star, like we'll see what happens with Ethan, like, because he's only around for what, like three, four episodes? I don't know how many episodes he's like. Three episodes episodes. with the snippet in the series finale, but I think they actually filmed I think they filmed that originally during season three and then they chose to oh, save it. Oh, okay. Like, I, yeah, I'm correct. just so impressed with the fact that he has so little time in the show. First of all, we get that kind of bottle episode with him. And then overall, he has, like, he has three episodes to make this, like, he, he is Cassie and Cole's son, potentially the witness. Like, and then over a series of three episodes, you find out that it's not him, and then he dies, and then, like, it's just, it's so quick, and yet it feels like there is so much room for that story to breathe. Like, I'm, I'm extremely impressed by taking a character that we have never met, we've been waiting to meet, but we've never met, having, that ends up having a completely different story than what we expected, that we have to learn about for the first time, because we don't know anything about his life, other than the things that have been suggested that are, that are wrong essentially um and and suddenly we have to learn about this new character and what ticks him off and then what like what leads him to make this big sacrifice play and like it's it's i can't believe it's over three episodes like it's yeah it's basically it's basically like two hours yeah (laughs) you know because it's the end of this episode and and i can only uh, i assume like this is this is an athan the Ethan that we're seeing in this moment is an Ethan who has lost Eliza over and over again and mm-hmm. has made the decision to embrace becoming the witness because he watches, you know, his adopted father die and then says, we will meet again, dear friend, when the forest is red. Like, so this is an Ethan that has made that choice for now mm-hmm. and believes that he will be reunited with Sebastian or, you know, that Sebastian will find his eternal life when he brings about the Red Forest. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like you go from being slightly scared of him and like, holy shit, at the end of this episode to being very upset yeah. when he's saying goodbye to his parents. That's Less than two hours from now, right? Like, how do they do that? <laughs> so, and then he's gonna when he when he comes back at the beginning of the series finale, I like gasped and was like so happy to have that glimpse of him again. I right? know like, because like, and you wouldn't even imagine that like he made that much. I mean, it's James Callis, so it makes sense. But like, he made that much of an impression in the story. Like, the character made that much of an impression in the story that like 
we think that not only does he have an impact not even being there for the rest of season four, but like when he comes, like you are, you are just so thrilled when he comes back because you're like, oh my gosh, like you, you were important. You affected every single person. And the way they use every single one of his scenes, because he has so few scenes, but, um, and, and a half of them are in the Eliza story, which is of course his like formative story, but the way they use his scenes with the past Cassie and Cole, the way his interactions with Jennifer affect him, like the, of course the Sebastian stuff, like, I, I mean, even this, this last scene and young Ethan Sebastian scenes, like it's, it's amazing how much, how much they cover in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, it's, it definitely takes, uh, takes some skill. And then James Callis has the skill, of course, to pull it off. And he's super, so charming in, in his acting that like, you, you just, you believe it, you know, like you, you are drawn in automatically just by the fact that it's him and he's, he's such a, um, charismatic actor. But I think like the way, they build him and his story with each of the characters that we already care about and how he's involved in their stories, I think makes, makes a huge, huge difference and a huge impact on the story. And it's, it's very impressive. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, obviously like my husband and I screamed Mm -hmm. because of Battlestar um, at the end of this episode, but I don't now like, you know, when I think of, James Callis with respect to the show, it is firmly about Ethan. And yes. it is such a different character, right? They're both charming. They're both quick with like a witty retort, right? Like mm-hmm. both of the characters he played in Battlestar and 12 Monkeys. But but <laughs> like Ethan is like soulful. Yeah, those are two different people. Exactly. Very, yeah. very different. Very, very different. And they're both like very different performances. So like when you get to see an actor do that, that's when you really are just like, oh my God. They're so good. Just, they're so good. <laughs> um, all right. So I think we just have a few quick rabbit holes. Um, very exciting. I know, and I feel like everybody now makes fun of us for our, or, or fun of me for our rabbit holes. But why they're they, very interesting? The, uh, look, like they're the ones that brought up Edgar Allan Poe and a specific story, and then built a whole masquerade scene when the story is the Mask of the Red Death. So I'm doing it. I mean, people um, come for the flailing and um and a lot of <laughs> intelligent discussion discourse, and they leave with hopefully some trivia knowledge yeah, or. Or this is when they're pressing stop on the podcast. I don't know. All right. So um, really quickly, uh, The Mask of the Red Death is a short story. And Edgar Allan Poe actually is sort of one of the um, pioneers of writing short stories. Um, in He wrote it in 1842. Um, Edgar Allan Poe, of course, is the famous um, – you know, 19th century American writer. Um, he, I live in DC, so he's buried in Baltimore. And Baltimore, obviously, like, is obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe. So there's a lot of. <laughs> I mean, they've got a football team named the Ravens. So, um, so it's a big, it's a big deal. Sort of, a, he's a big deal in the Mid Atlantic. Um, but he was a mystery writer. He wrote sort of, I think, what you could categorize as sort of like early like genre. Maybe even thinking of him as sort of one of the forefathers of sci-fi. Definitely macabre like his stories are scary and influenced sort of by gothic literature um and and really kind of dwelling in in death um he 
lost his sort of beloved wife to tuberculosis and sort of this like obsession with death and even like the death of a beautiful woman um, sort of permeates his writings, which sure isn't intentional, but it's definitely like an interesting parallel when you think about sort of the source of Athens, um, like uh, almost becoming the witness, right? Losing the woman you love. Um, But, you know, kind of getting at this idea of death and like what death takes from us. Um, Specifically, the story, The Mask of the Red Death, really quickly, um, it is (laughs) – tell me if you can think of some parallels as I describe (laughs) this. It is a story that takes place during a fictional plague. There is a prince hiding in a castle, and he holds a fancy masquerade ball um, for sort of the, the privileged and the elite, despite this plague. And each room, it, it, there's a lot of description in the story about how each room is decorated in a different color. And some interpretations of the story, some people get really mad when you try and do any symbolic interpretation of Poe at all, but um, <laughs> that's not going to stop people from doing it. And so some people interpret um, sort of the different colors of the room as being symbolic of different um, parts of the day, because there's a very prevalent theme of time and sort of the passage of time and the inevitability of death. So throughout the story, there is a clock that keeps ringing. And every time it rings, the guests at this masquerade ball um, kind of stop what they're doing. And then when the clock stops, they like resume. Um, And finally, a figure wearing a red mask shows up and everyone stops what they're doing and is like too scared to even like stop him. He walks up to the prince and the prince dies And then all of the guests die. And then it turns out that there's no actual figure behind the mask. The mask is death itself, um, which is inevitable and comes for everyone. Um, So there's some really great lines in the story um, where, uh, you know, they – they obviously reference this in the episode. They have set up a masquerade ball where everybody is waiting for a guest in a red mask. Um, there are some lines that stick out um, in the story just with respect that, you know, are sort of evocative of 12 monkeys. The focus on a giant clock of ebony. Um, yeah. We will we will post um, – there's phenomenal illustrations um, – of this story. In all of the illustrations, you have the grandfather clock and you have a figure wearing a robe with a mask. It's very witness-like. Um, it's like, you know, the gra- the Grim Reaper, yep, I'm right? I'm looking at it right now. It is. Uh, uh, there's like, is that a serpent or something in there underneath oh, the clock? Oh, man. Yeah. So there are two illustrations. One is by Harry Clark in 1919, if you want to Google. The other is by Arthur Rackham. Um, and that one's from 1935. And if you just Google the Mask of the Red Death and then look at images, you'll see them. But in all of them, there's a clock. And in all of them, there's a figure in death. And like – The mask. It, oh, my gosh. This I is know. You it's crazy, right? right? <laughs> so here are some of the key lines, okay? So I'm just going to okay. read a couple lines. And then I promise I will move on and I won't stay down this rabbit hole for too long. Um, they describe it as – um, Prince Prospero, the main character, entertained his thousands of friends at a mass ball of the most unusual magnific- magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. So, uh, you know, obviously, it's, it's oh, how it's set the scene at the end of this episode. Um, 
In one of the rooms, there's a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face, the hour was to be stricken. Now, it's interesting to me that at the end of this episode, when Jennifer is talking to Jones at the ball, she's like, she talks about swinging to and fro like like a granddaddy mm-hmm. clock, and that's when Joan slaps her. And obviously, that's a line that Jennifer has said since the pilot. Um, but it's kind of fun that they specifically mention the grandfather clock when that pr- that is featured so prominently in the story. Um, and then, sort of, when death enters the ball, I know. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and now was acknowledged the presence of the red death. He had come like a thief in the night. And one by one, the revelers in their blood-bedewed halls of their revel and died each in despairing posture of his fall. The life of the ebony clock went out with the last of the gay. The flames of the tripods expired and darkness and decay and red death held illimitable dominion over all. Oh so, my goodness. <laughs> it's all red. Everyone dies. So, the clock time stops. Like, ah, you know, like, dude, the parallels are all there. Um, this and, is madness. Now we, now you know what you need to ask in, in Thief. Like, this oh is. Oh man. And they're all going to be like, dude, you read too much into it. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, his stories are, like, they're always, they're always in this same, like, somebody's dead and like are they dead and what does that mean and you you don't really because like when you were saying that he the death of a beautiful woman features heavily and it's like the one story that i do remember um reading was was the one where like the the woman is dead and like the guy goes to visit his friend and the 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 entire mansion falls into the earth do you remember what story I'm talking about? I don't, but <laughs> do you want to do you want to know what his wife's middle what Edgar Allan Poe's wife's middle name is? What? Uh oh, Eliza. Oh, totally polycoincidence. When I was like, what? Um, the other really f- the other that possible is insane. I know. So we'll put the illustrations up. Um, on our you, yeah, uh, you all need to see the because I, I just saw the picture that you were describing, and that was a that was wild. Oh, I'm remembering yeah. the fall of the House of Usher. That's the story. So oh, that's yes, another really creepy story, and yes. amazing, and a really good yeah. creepy story. <laughs> yes, I mean, and the other possible parallel too is that you know in this episode. Everyone, all of the main char- like all of our main characters and Sebastian are all waiting for Ethan to show mm-hmm. up, right? Sebastian is waiting for Ethan, and what really comes for him that night is death. So uh, there's just a lot, you he know. Had I come won't... like a thief in the night. I can't. I can't. Uh, I know. <laughs> I know. Right? Like the idea of death coming like a thief in the night, and obviously we're gonna explore that in the next episode. So the thief you know, in the night is actually a heavy biblical reference. Is it really? What? Can, yeah. Please, please explain. Uh, I mean, it's in several different places. Often, it actually is a reference to Jesus Himself and His return. It's in Revelation. Oh. It's in. It's referenced in uh, several of the um, in the New Testament as well. But it's basically it's talking about always being ready. You know, um, and oh, what am I trying to say? Um, like to live your life as if you're ready, essentially, to meet Him because He's not going to tell you when He's coming. He will come like a thief in the night. Interesting. And upon that hour and that day, you should be prepared. 
Yeah. Whoa. I know. Um, the other really um, quick rabbit holes. Um, uh, Cassie, obviously, in this episode, references the great the Great Plague um, in London of 1665. I'm pretty sure that Cassie in the pilot included that in her presentation um, and was showing, like, <laughs> pictures of it. Um, and masked balls um, – you know, if you read books from this time period, um, or like think of, um, Count of Monte Cristo and sort of that, the big, um, the big scenes that take place in Venice when the Count finds, um, uh, what's his face's son, masked balls were, really became popular in Europe um, in the 1700s, but then go- going into sort of the 1800s later in London. Um, and, you know, the idea that, like, it's a party, you can wear a mask, people, you know, it's like Halloween, right? Like, you get to act in a way <laughs> that, like, you don't normally. And so it is also sort of like this very much could have been, you know, like an event that the elite would have been going to in London because they were – popular things for people to do. Um, and then pennies for a pauper um, can be traced back to coins over the eyes of the dead, which ties back to the myth of Karen, um, you know, paying the ferryman to cross the river Styx, which we already know is is the name of the project um, that Jones yes, is giving yeah. to moving. So um, when you go down a rabbit hole on that, it's like, yeah, sometimes in England, they use the coins to like keep the, the dead's eyes closed. And I was like, Wow. So there's also a practical reason why they put coins <laughs> over someone's <laughs> eyes. Um, but you know, I think it is certainly like, it's sort of a striking image of death, right? Coins over the eyes. That is an image of death that goes back to like, uh, Greek mythology in ancient Greece, right? And so it's interesting that like in this moment that Athan is like seeing this old friend for the first time now in 20 years and he's dead and he's promising to basically bring about in effect his resurrection. He's, uh, there's like a, an ancient ritual to marking his death by putting the coins over the eyes. Um, and it's something he always knew he was going to do. So just kind of, yeah, there's a lot to it. Um, that was it for my rabbit holes. They were great. <laughs> Do you guys have anything the, else? The post stuff especially, I'm just like, wow. I, I love how uh, well-read they are and how much they seem to enjoy putting these little nuggets in in the show. <laughs> yeah, man, I know. We didn't have Professor Aaron, but I, right? I did my yeah. best. <laughs> get, some of that, get that lesson. We, we need it. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you guys have anything else about the episode? Just uh, residual flails, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> residual flails. Um, what are you guys watching right now that makes you happy? Beep. <laughs> <laughs> I just started season four of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yay. <laughs> I watched the first three seasons, I don't know, very quickly because it's been my um, in-between uh, editing treat and every minute that I'm not doing that, I'm just trying to be lost in it. And it's it's very, very good. I was surprised, extremely surprised at how character-driven it is. And that made me happy. Yay! And season four is so good. <laughs> I am watching season six of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> so, I mean, all the things that Beep said, and so I won't I won't gush about it some more. But there's there were a couple of episodes in season six that I think are like 
the best of the series and it's it's coming back for a final season so i'm really excited but since um other than that since we talked about that but um there's two sitcoms that i've been really enjoying which are a surprise to me i guess um because they're not like what you would expect because i love the good place and all that but like the the two that i i like happened upon were um schooled and single parents and I think they're, they might both be on ABC. I don't know. I have no idea what channel they're on because I watch them on Hulu, but, <laughs> but, um, they're both really sweet. Like they're both, if you're looking for something kind of like just happy and sweet and like kind of a bunch of messy people being really nice to each other, those are two shows that you would enjoy. Like I, I have really, really been enjoying both of them a lot and they just came back. Both of them are back for second seasons. And so they're going on right now. And I, I really, that's a, that's a really sweet and happy part of my week. I saw that, um, Schitt's Creek season five is on yes. Netflix today. <gasps> yes, it is. And also, uh, Superstore is back and being Superstore awesome. Superstore is usual. back. Yes. Superstore one- is so good. It is. The one new show that I've picked up this round of fall shows that actually is a drama is based on um, some comics is I'm really enjoying Stumptown so far. Um, Kobe Smulders one, right? Yeah. Amazing. Yep. And Jake Johnson and uh, Michael Ely and Catherine, sorry, Cameron Mannheim. Very cool. What about you, Tina? Um, I have, um, so I mentioned it briefly, but I, I actually just, we've just finished, I think last week, Black Sails, um, which was originally on Stars, but you can watch it on Hulu. And it is a, um, Toby Stevens is the lead, um, who I didn't, I didn't realize is Maggie Smith's son. And now I can't like unsee it. <laughs> like every time I see him, I'm like, what? Um, he is a phenomenal actor. Like just bringing it back to period pieces. He was an unbelievable Rochester, um, in a Jane Eyre adaptation. Um, and my kids like watching him now in Lost in Space. It's fun to watch, but, um, Black Sails, which Beep is one of the people that recommended it to me, is a part it is a prequel to Treasure Island, mm-hmm. um, but it also has real historical figures in it, such as Blackbeard and Charles Vane and Jack Rackham and Anne Bonny. So I learned a ton of like history that I feel now really ignorant, like that's like <laughs> taking place off the coast of North Carolina and Florida and um obviously it's like during sort of the Pirate Republic era of NASA. Um and it is my favorite, you know, 12 Monkeys is my favorite TV writing of all time, but Black Sails is my favorite since I've watched 12 Monkeys, if, if I can put it that way. It is like they know where they're going. It's unbelievably character driven while balancing all of the historical details. Like, like I got to be honest with you, when I saw the name Michael Bay as one of the producers, I was like, what the fuck? I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> um, but, but it's like they said, my, that whatever Michael Bay did, he just built ships and knew how to blow them up and do like, you know, like the naval battles, which remind me of like master and commander. Like, I love that shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but it's so character driven. If as a woman watching, I would give you a warning as somebody gave me, there's some really, really rough stuff to watch at the beginning of season one, which Episode is going to make three and four and five. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to make you have kind of those Game of Thrones. I am done watching people do this to women kind of feels, but I promise you it is 
for all of the women in the show, it is worth it to keep watching. They have really, really complex female characters. The ending is one that is as much about stories and what do you what do you want from a story? Um, so that if you kind of enjoyed that part of 12 Monkeys, um, I think you'll really, really like it, it was a really, really wonderful show. Beautiful writing and like wonderfully acted. Um, and then I had this and you, you Alicia's going to laugh because she's going to remember probably about mm, six months ago when I'd be like, guys, I'm just like, uh, I mean, I like the superhero movies, but I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm just kind of over them. You're laughing, right? Like, you probably have the fucking receipts. I went to go see Avengers Endgame with Beep. Um, She was in town for a con, and we went to go see it. And, like, you know, I I cheered and was like, whatever. But then I walked out. I'm like, dude, the time travel. I even made a meme of Jones being like, that's not how this works, right? And then I had had a crazy spiral that I love. A crazy fucking spiral of my 11-year-old. You guys can all just laugh and say, I told you so. Um, I had an 11-year-old who was in a cast, had surgery and was in crutches all summer. And there's nothing to do in the summer when you have a kid that can't walk. So my three kids and my parents who were helping out and Mr. Check who came in and out, um, we sat down and we watched all of the Marvel movies. And we watched them like you watch a television show. Which is not, even if you watch them leading up to Avengers Endgame, until you know, like, what the end is, like, you don't, you you don't sit there during watching, like, the Avengers and see Tony Stark be like, there's nothing special about you other than a bottle to Steve Rogers, and Steve Rogers say, you're not the guy to make the sacrifice play to Tony Stark, and know that you're going to rewatch that and probably sob when you think of the end of, like, Avengers exactly. Endgame, right? <laughs> With, like, Thor's hammer and Tony, like, sacrificing himself, so... The character, I mean, listen, I'm never not going to be mad about the female characters. I'm never not going to be mad about Black Widow. Like, that part was not well done. But when you want to talk about, like, character development for the main three of, like, Thor and Iron Man and Captain America, it is a phenomenal rewatch. I don't know. Like, when I'm sitting back in 2019 and my children and my baby boomer parents are choking up at lines like I don't like bullies or like hotly debating the civil war dilemma about superheroes being beholden to the government and my baby boomer parents are like of course they should follow the rules and my kids are like no that would mean freaking Donald Trump would be in charge of superheroes no it's a really like interesting important way for people to connect through I'm sorry Martin Scorsese cinema like (laughs) You know, like yeah, I just take a seat. no. <laughs> I, I I love him. I love him, but like he and Jennifer Aniston can go take a seat because it moved my family emotionally and to talk about things that my parents and my kids would not normally be talking about, and that is part of a function of rewatching it, given what's going on in the world and in particularly the United States in 2019. So, yeah, like people forget that that. Uh, accessibility of and i'm not saying they're the most accessible movies uh, because you know the female characters issues and all that like they're they are they're not without their flaws but like i think having movies with like messages or themes that are accessible to people so that we can actually talk about them 
using those movies as a medium, I think Marvel movies are really, really good at doing that. And like, I mean, I, I love that you've come full circle to this point that we like, you know, because we, we've been constantly discussing Marvel movies and now you're like all in, which I, which I adore, like to the point that like, us selling Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to you was like, Nikita, another show I adore, by the way, Nikita, definitely watch that show. <laughs> that, that's how I, you know, that's how I roped my husband and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, honey, it's going to be like Nikita, but with superheroes But like, too. yeah, Nikita with a dash <laughs> of Avengers and like complex female characters and like butt kicking and earnestness and justice and like just, yeah, th- there's, there is a place definitely right now that that those stories live in and it's a very important place and i disagree with anyone who thinks otherwise <laughs> i know i know it's funny because you know martin scorsese my dad went to the same all boys catholic high school as martin scorsese so he is for many reasons always been like sort of family hero of like the guy who went to Cardinal Hayes in the Bronx and made good. And even my dad was like, mm, I think <laughs> I, I think Marty got that one wrong. <laughs> like maybe Marty should sit down and watch some of these movies. So it's been like it was really fun, but it is they are so complex plot-wise. I swear multiple times I realized I didn't know what the fuck was going on in Endgame until I sat down and watched them like a TV show. Mm-hmm. And I'm super interested to see where all the time travel stuff goes, um, particularly with the um, what's the new show that's going to come out, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, because I, I, from what they're teasing, it sounds like they're going to be playing with that. And obviously, you know, we talk about time travel for three hours per episode. So anyway, go watch Black Sails and sit down and watch Marvel like a TV show, because like, I think it honestly works the best way that way. Yes. Yes, the summary also for, I think, from our end was definitely watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> yeah, I watched the pilot and we are Aww, so in. Yay. <laughs> so in. Um, I'm going to mix that up with Succession because I can only watch rich assholes so often per week. Um, all right, so our next episode will be um, 309 Thief with co-creator and showrunner Terry Metalis and producer and writer of the episode Sean Tretta. If you guys have anything else, then we'll see you soon.